0: I walked away from the sport because I was tired of the politics and the feelings that I got about my worth as a human being and my body. And, like, it was so exhausting to always feel like I was, like, an object or a project or, you know, something. I couldn't uh, figure out how to find my love for it again. So, like, why not just run away? I don't want to keep trying and forcing this if I'm just going to feel angry at it. And that was my reason for stopping. I was tired. I was tired of what was going on. I was tired of feeling like I was just, like I said, this object or this project or not enough or needed to be somebody for these coaches or these people. I just like wanted to be. And it was such a powerful feeling within me that I was just so tired of that. And so I just ran away. You know, so I sort of view my purpose in life as being able to heal so the next generations can continue to heal, regardless of if I have my own children or not. Like, that's my whole mission is how can you create space for people to know that they're able to be whatever they can be if they can really work on healing their mind and their body together. It's possible.
1: That's Caroline Burkle. And this is episode 565 of The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Needless to say, I am the first to admit it has been way too long since we've had some powerful female energy on the show. So today we fix that courtesy of my buddy Burks, who you will soon discover has far more to offer than her admittedly impressive Olympic biography might suggest. But first, a quick reminder that we're running a special holiday deal on the Plant Power Meal Planner stocking stuffer gift cards. Just a great way to help graciously and conveniently ease your loved ones towards cooking and eating healthier. So now through December 25, annual memberships are just $79, $20 off our normal annual fee. No promo code necessary. To learn more and to grab your gift card today, click Meal Planner on the homepage menu at richroll.com or go directly to meals.richroll.com. that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, or code roll 25 Okay, Earth to Caroline Burkle. A fellow former competitive swimmer, Caroline is a 23 time All American. She's a two time NC2A champion. In 2008, she was named NC2A Female Swimmer of the Year, mainly because she broke Janet Evans' legendary NC2A record in the 500 free, which at the time was the oldest record on the books. And Caroline would then go on to win a bronze medal in the four by 200 free relay at the Beijing Olympics. More interesting, however, and I think highly relatable is her life post-swimming. So this is a conversation about her athletic career, of course, the psychological struggles that she faced as a prodigious athlete, her battle with depression and her familiar addiction to people-pleasing, something that I personally very much relate to. But it's also an expose on the harmful paradigms perpetuated in athletic institutions and what we must do to better support the next generation of Olympians. But more than anything, this exchange is a playbook, a playbook on how to find power in vulnerability, how to listen to your body, and ultimately how to use your voice. Burks and I are buddies going way back several years. She is both a powerhouse as well as a humble empath. Her energy is super infectious and I'm honored to share her story with you today. May her words inspire you to find your own truth and to never stop learning. So without further ado, this is me and Caroline Burkle. Burkle. You're in the house. Hey, dude. It took a minute to make <laughs> I know. this happen.
0: I think for a reason.
1: Yeah. Oh, I definitely well. for a reason.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, we met, was it like five years ago at this point at that mind body green thing? Dude, I saw that picture the other day.
0: It popped up in my reminders oh, or whatever.
1: Memories thing, yeah. What year Is was that? that? Two, it might've been 2015, we 2016 took it maybe.
0: to send a Jack. Right. And right. it was, I remember it specifically. I was like, dude we know, I know the same person, you know, and it was like this moment where we well, <laughs> so it sent wasn't, him a selfie.
1: <laughs> it, it wasn't the kind of conference where you expect to run into swimmers. You yeah, know? no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't know who you were and then we met, and we immediately hit it off. That was super fun to establish that we both were friends with Jack Roach, yeah. who's this beautiful mentor in the swimming community. You know, this amazing human being who I know means so much to you and is a more recent friend uh, of mine, but somebody who I care deeply about. So that was like our our, our meeting point, our meet yeah. cute. Yes. And then uh, we became friends ever since. And I think the last time I saw you, was that up in Tahoe when we yes. did that training camp? Yes. So it's been a couple of years, that was 2017.
0: Yeah, there's a reason for right. that on my end,
1: but. But here's the thing, <laughs> the minute I met you, I was like, this girl's lit. Like she would be great <laughs> for the podcast, but. She's dealing with a few things. I, oh, yeah. I think I'll let her bake for a little while. Yeah, you her needed sort, to let me Sort bake. a few things out. <laughs> and I'm glad that I did. Like you said, these things, you know, that, that timing is important. And I think the time for this is perfect right now. I yeah. think if had we done it a couple of years earlier, it would be a very different conversation.
0: Very different. Yeah. Half of the things wouldn't have, I would have never been aware of half of the mm-hmm. things that I would wanna talk about. Right. It wouldn't even have been in my consciousness. Like it would have been buried seven layers deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way down. Maybe
1: I could have teased it out of you yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I probably would have been like sobbing my eyes. But <laughs> now you're you're you know fully embracing um, this growth trajectory that you've been on. And I think what's unique and interesting about you as somebody who has hosted several conversations with Olympians over the years and and plenty of Olympic swimmers, most of those conversations are rooted in the Olympic experience itself. And we're going to talk about that with you, of course. But what's most interesting about your story is the aftermath of that and the kind of growth that you've experienced and the issues that you've wrestled with, you know, post career to become this more actualized human being.
0: Yeah. It's been a ride. Yeah. When I think back, I was actually listening to your podcast with John Moffat Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I was just, I was walking. I was on my like power walk for five, six miles because I'm trying to get some foot time in right now, like I'm trying to get back to running still. Yeah. <laughs> still on this like five-year journey back to running. And I was listening to that podcast with him and it was just speaking to me because he was like, I don't even remember that person.
1: Mm, right. I don't
0: even remember the person that competed in the games. I mm-hmm. remember this other person that was, you know, afterward and and um, the feelings that I had and the emotions that went through. This process to transition, mm-hmm. and I felt so seen. <laughs> like, right. I feel seen. Yeah. I'm not the only person that feels like I just don't identify with that one, you know, Olympic right. uh, name in right. my life. That wasn't just it for me, right? And I feel selfish. I feel selfish saying that. Why? I, admittedly, right now, I feel selfish saying that
1: because you feel like it's such a gift to have had that Olympic Mm -hmm. experience. And with that, there's some responsibility that you shoulder to communicate about it in a certain way.
0: Yeah, because here I am, 34, I run a business of Olympic and professional athletes that give back to the next generation. And I have shame associated with being an Olympian. So, you know, it's like this this pull of both directions. It's like, you need to be this and you need to be really proud of it. But you also like had this experience with it and you're not really wanting to claim and own some of that experience. And so how can you settle in the middle of that?
1: Like, but what is that about? Like, where does the shame emanate from? Mm.
0: Where do you wanna start?
1: <laughs> yeah, let's start at the <laughs> beginning. We can go all the way back to the beginning. We can go back to the quarry pool in, in, oh, in Kentucky.
0: Oh did you ever swim there?
1: I haven't, but it's on my bucket list. I, I love, you know, outdoor pools like that. I was in Austin a few weeks ago. And oh, went I saw to Barton Springs, I just, yeah. you know, and, and when I was in Australia swimming at icebergs every day, like I love those pools. I was so jealous
0: when you were there. Um, to answer, to, to sort of say the, the first thing first about the shame with being an Olympian and the shame, you know, why is it that it's so difficult to say that you have that if you're also trying to hold this image that you're proud of it, is that I have this uh, concept in my mind that I cannot have both. I cannot have a feeling about being an Olympian that's negative and also the feeling about being Olympian that's positive.
1: Mm. I've been raised to think- So you default to the negative. Yeah,
0: I'm sure you very well know that.
1: I know you well. I feel like I get you. Not being an Olympian, I can't own that (laughs) aspect of it.
0: But the feeling of you know, how could I be so proud of it and also have so much um, trauma and shame associated with Mm -hmm. the same thing? Mm -hmm. Like how are both of those things possible? Mm -hmm. And I grew growing up, I didn't think I could have two feelings. It was you had to have one feeling and it needs to be this, and you need to follow that. Like you're not right. allowed to have multiple opinions and feelings and... and um,
1: Or perhaps the shame is a result of not feeling the way that you feel like you're supposed to feel about that experience.
0: Right, yeah, because that's what has been ingrained is that that is just, that's it. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel really good about that. Don't but you know how lucky you are? Okay, so should we start there? Because yeah. that is something I've been unpacking a lot over the past couple of years is... Um, Growing up, I grew up in this amazing pool, this great city, this wonderful family. It was it was wonderful. But the society that I grew up in in Louisville was very much you should be very grateful for what you have. Don't question it. This is the way it is. This is who you are and you know, and I and I grew up in this mindset of well, <laughs> I, have, I, I can't have a darn bad feeling to save my life because if I have a bad feeling or if I have a negative um, feeling or thought or emotion that comes up, then I'm a bad
1: person. Mm.
0: My character is bad.
1: Does that come from the parents, the parental units or where does that idea germinate from?
0: It comes from several avenues. I grew up in a very strict Catholic school system so we're church it. three times a week, yeah. oh my <laughs> okay. goodness. I mean, so church three times a week, you know, and it, it I don't wanna like talk poorly about the, the system that it was, but I always felt like I was so different than everybody there in the first place. So I grew up in this place where everyone's telling me what to do and how to do it. And I didn't like that. <laughs> I uh-huh. didn't like that feeling of, why do I have to think one way, you know? So it originated there, this, I have to please. I can't have my own thoughts and opinions and emotions. I can't have more than one feeling and it needs to be positive mm-hmm. or else people will be upset with me. Mm-hmm. And so that whole thing that I've been unpacking was sort of a pattern that I continued to follow throughout my career and my life.
1: Your brother doesn't seem to harbor that though.
0: Interestingly enough, not as much.
1: Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. So part of that perhaps is because you were a girl. Hmm.
0: My father was tough. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So your parents were both athletes. Your mm-hmm. dad owned all these like fitness clubs, right? Mm-hmm. Tennis tennis and swim clubs. Yeah, tennis and swim so clubs. So it was a very active mm-hmm. ensemble.
0: Yeah. So he swam for L. He swam for Lakeside. He was like Mary T's teammate. Mm. Him and Mary T grew up together. Oh, wow. She would kick his ass, the whole thing, you
1: know? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so Mary T's gotta be like a huge looming presence and, you know, in the swimming kind oh of gosh. lore of Kentucky, right? She's amazing. For I mean, people that don't know, I mean, she dominated Butterfly for years and set world records that at the time just seemed untouchable.
0: Oh my God, Madam Butterfly. Yeah. I mean, her stories, the stories just of her practice with her lungs collapsing and her finishing 10, 500's Butterfly. Uh-huh. It's insane. Right. I'm like, wait, your your lungs collapsed and you finished 10, 500s butterfly. Like, what are you talking about? So, you know, she was a legend there, and it was a gift to swim for Lakeside. You know, it mm-hmm. was like you're lucky. You're in this space where you're in this outdoor rock quarry pool. Um, you should be so lucky. And um, so, yeah. So, my dad owned these fitness clubs. My mom was a tennis player, so she played professional, top pro. And her whole mindset is, she's from here. She's from California. So she's just like, woo, like, you know, you do you, like, I'm gonna do me. Like her whole deal is very uh, open mind, free mind. Like she's just very um, spirited. And my dad is very strict and, you know, dogmatic and follows the rules. And so the combo of them, I think was confusing for me as a child. Mm -hmm. Cause I felt this pull to like, please, but then also like, you can do whatever you want and be whoever right. you want. Please, you can do whoever you want and
1: be whoever you want. And but a little s- bit of each of those is probably good.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And they also, you know, grew up in really tough environments themselves. So like knowing where they came from and what their background is makes a whole lot of sense. Um so that's sort of where all this originated <laughs> is, right. is in this space of as a child, how could I have had more than one feeling?
1: Mm-hmm
0: and not plea like i had to please but that came from
1: everywhere well the people pleasing comes into play in a big way later down the line we're going to work our way up to that but yeah. at this early age was it that was there an expectation like you're going to be this athlete or it was just it was kind of the atmosphere that you were in right it was mm-hmm. just an active environment and you were just by dint of being your parents kid like around a swimming pool all the time
0: yeah, so they'd drop us off at 8 a.m., pick us up at 9 p.m. when it closed. We were at the pool all day uh-huh. long. I mean, totally unsupervised, <laughs> just yeah. running around like pool rats. Clark was competing with every 18-year-old as a 9-year-old. She's like, let's compete, you know, let's do this. Uh, I was not that way, really. I had a very... Um, more of a calm demeanor with competition. Like I didn't really, I wasn't really like a savage competitor. I didn't really have this like, I'm gonna do this and win, and like I need to train, you know, 20 hours a day. And but I had this like, I want to be here around my friends. And uh-huh. I enjoyed the social aspect of it. And I really like this feeling of being a part of a team and a community and uh my suits cute and you know, all of these different things that I could experience as a young girl that felt like um. I was just free to be me in that space. Like I could just be me.
1: That's so interesting because that's atypical of somebody who excels at the highest level, right? Like you have this kind of freewheeling approach to the whole thing. Was the talent immediately evident from the beginning or did that, how did you grow into that aspect of, of being a true competitor?
0: I had a lot of talent as a young girl. I had a lot of natural just fluid talent. I was not a workhorse, I was a racehorse. So you know, I um, didn't perform in practice. Uh-huh. So when people would see me as a little girl, they would have never guessed that I was really good because mm-hmm. I was dog last in the middle of practice all the time. Um,
1: but then you'd get up on the blocks mm-hmm. for the race and win.
0: Yeah, I had something innate within me that I could click on and off very well. I didn't have to show that or prove that to people. I didn't feel the need to do that. Swimming felt like this artistic expression or or something internal that I could do that felt like for one time in my day or in my life or in my week, I could feel free Uh and that I didn't have to do it for anybody else.
1: That's a very 2020 uh, (laughs) relationship to sport, but not a very 1995 relationship to sport.
0: But that's why I felt so outcast Mm. with ever like nobody understood me. There wasn't a meet that went by as a child um, in high school and college to where I really felt seen for how I performed and the way that I trained and the way that I saw my relationship with the sport. I wasn't obsessed with times. I wasn't obsessed with stats. I didn't know any of that. My brother was that. My brother was like, boom, boom, boom. Here's your time, here's your split. And I'm like, ah, I can't.
1: I'm trying to visualize what the communication would have been like with your coaches at the time then, because that must've been (laughs) frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Or was it a a situation in which, you know, they're trying to, you know, jam this square peg into a round hole and you're just doing your own thing.
0: Yeah, Mike DeBoer, who, do you know Mike? Mm -mm. Legend
1: of coach. See the lakeside coach? Lakeside coach.
0: Legend of a coach. Um, He got me. It took him a little bit, but he got me. And so once I got into his group, so it's like, you know, bronze, silver, gold, pre-senior, senior. Like once uh-huh. I got into his senior group, it was like boom. Mm. I could feel seen. I was, which I know it's a very cliche term, but now looking back. I felt so comfortable with him because he understood the way that I performed was in my body. It was Mm -hmm. a somatic experience of this feeling. I was a feeling athlete and I I wasn't a thinking athlete. I didn't have the stats and the splits and all of that Mm -hmm. down. I had no idea. I had Mm -hmm. no idea what I was going into at a meet. I had no idea what ranking I was. I had no idea. I'd miss my races all the time. It's, I didn't kind of, pay attention. it's kind
1: of like <laughs> hilarious and endearing, though, because swimming is so stats-driven. It's all about you know what the pace clock is telling you and your heart rate, <laughs> and you know you you know kind of the splits that you need to you know hit to get your goal time, and you know what the Olympic trials qualifying time is, and all of that stuff is like yeah. you know imprinted onto the brain. But I not have, for you.
0: No. And I tried, Uh I tried really hard. I remember sitting down and writing my goals and trying to figure out my splits. And I remember these stories where I would sit at the kitchen table at our very first house, you know, Barberry Lane. And my parents would sit there and help me. My mom of course had no, she was not into that either. But my dad would sit and help me with splits. And I just did not understand it. There was no (laughs) comprehension at all as a child. Like I, it was right over my head. Uh huh. And I tried like I tried really hard, <laughs> and, and I'm glad that I did because I could see that side of it that's uh-huh. really important to develop and understand, but I personally just i didn't it didn't resonate with me so
1: <laughs> so I, I suspect not so good in math class horrible, yeah,
0: like failed the whole <laughs> way through, but like oddly uh-huh. enough, like you know all a's and language arts and art and spelling and uh, science and social studies and all of yeah. these other classes, but math. Straight fail, and I would go to tutors, and I, you know, I'd I'd come home crying so much just because I felt like I was a failure because I wasn't the same as everybody else. My school was a math and science school; Mm. it was heavy in that, and Mm. I was this artist, (laughs) this mind that was free thinking and saw things abstractly, and you know, shapes and all, and all these things. Like I, I count things by like this curtain right here, I'll count by the number of, of creases in it. You know, like I'm weird. I think of things in a very yeah. odd and abstract way and that was not okay. Like when I, that was not okay. That was mm-hmm. very confusing to people. Mm-hmm. And so once I started to uh, realize that, I started to gear myself more towards things like that in high school and stuff. I took art and AP art and stayed in that lane. But when it came to swimming, I really had to work with Mike on what that looked like for me because I wasn't the same as everybody else in the pool. Interesting.
1: Do you think that your swimming career would have looked different if you just stayed in mm. under his tutelage the whole time? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he understood, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: I think there would have been a learning curve again and again and again as I went on through the ranks of it. You know, like it, I would have changed and I would have grown and I would have gone through X, Y, Z and it would have gone over mm-hmm. and again. But, oh, I think about that all the time, just like what I could have achieved or done differently. Mm. and I suppose that's normal for people to think about sure, but um, yeah, having to go to college then and sort of relearn or have a have a coach relearn me was a whole exhaustion right. <laughs> exhausting process. Right.
1: We're getting up to that but but yeah. first, was there? I'm wondering whether there was like an inflection point early in your career when you were still in high school where you were like, oh man, like I'm really good at this. Like, was there a race or an event or something that occurred that, that mm. it, you know, it dawned upon you like, oh, I've got a real bright future.
0: Yeah, so um, I was a breaststroker first. So- That's weird.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that.
0: I mean, that was my first junior national cut and my first senior national mm. cut.
1: So how old were you when you first made Junior Nationals? 13. Yeah. Okay. I didn't go. Why not?
0: <laughs> Cuz I wasn't ready.
1: <laughs> According to who?
0: Me. So I had this uh who doesn't go? And, like that's a big deal when you're a young
1: kid and you make that that qualifying time.
0: I I uh I I remember, so it was at the University of Kentucky. I made it in the 100 breaststroke and I got out and I remember my brother was like pumping his chest, just like happier than I was. I was like, sick, I made this cut. Like, I don't even care. You know, it was this weird thing. And he's like, dude, you know what that means? Like, you know what that means? You get to go to this meet in Orlando Uh and all this stuff. And I'm (laughs) like, no, I'm not going. I started crying Mm. on deck and Mike looked at me and he is like, I could cry right now. And you know me, I'm very like vulnerable and emotional. So... Thanks for for bearing with me, but he um he he looked at me and he goes, you don't you don't want to go? And I said, no, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not there yet. And he was like, okay.
1: That's a <laughs> impressive level of self awareness for a young person, though.
0: I was extremely self aware. I I don't.
1: But how much of that was just fear of the unknown versus self understanding?
0: Certainly, fear. One hundred percent fear. But my fear was stemming from going there and not making people happy if I performed poorly. Mm. So my fear was never that I wouldn't do well because my fear didn't, uh, how do I say this? Um, Like without sounding weird, uh, I, I had a really strong trust in my ability. I knew I wasn't gonna be a bad swimmer. My fear was that I wouldn't please people. My fear was that I'd go and I'd fail and people would be upset with me. Mm-hmm. And if they're upset with me, that means I'm a bad person. And then if I'm a bad person, that means, you know, whatever else it means when but you're it 13 But it doesn't sound old. like your
1: parents cared that much. So it wasn't coming from them, was it?
0: That's the crazy thing is they were extremely hands-off with my swimming. My mom didn't even know what, like I'd, I'd swim and she would say like, oh my God, like that was, you know, that was a great swim. My mom, mm-hmm. I just added 10 seconds, you know? <laughs> she had right. no she was just you but you were the cutest one out there i'm like right. thanks mom you know <laughs> my dad was more in tuned um but they they never made me feel badly for any of my performances so i've started to realize that i was running from something throughout this time and then i kept running which we'll get to but i was running from something and i think i just have this um and i had this very strong fear Of upsetting people. And I still think, you know, I think if you ask anybody that, where does that come from? Sure, you can pinpoint a person or a place or a thing or whatever. But truthfully, you create a story about where that comes from. You know, you create what that looks like. And then you have this whole scenario in your head about why you're not pleasing people. And I was so imaginative that my stories were seven ceilings high. Yeah.
1: (laughs) To me, it almost sounds like. Fear of your own strength and power. Yeah. That if you were to go to a meet like that and actually excel at the level that innately you knew you were capable of, that that would actually be the thing that would upset people. Not failing, but actually being as awesome as you knew that you could be. Like that might ruffle feathers. Does that fit?
0: Yeah, you struck a chord just there um, for sure. Because upsetting people to me was not being liked, right? So if I'm not liked, which is the same thing as what you're saying, if I beat other girls, if Mm -hmm. I do, you know, great. What does that mean? Right, they don't like me. And if I'm not liked by these girls or by these people, Mm -hmm. then I'm a bad person. It all stems back to this like innate worthiness within myself that like, I'm just not a good person. If that happens, which is so interesting how that manifested at such a young age. But I, this happened all the time. I would let people beat me. I would literally let people beat me and meet sometimes because I was afraid to win. Yeah. I'd be looking around and they would be passing me and I would be like relieved. <laughs> it was crazy. Right, right, right. <laughs> and really, and then I'd get to the wall and just be so upset because I knew that I could have won and I still have my best races in my life, knew I could have gone seven seconds faster than that.
1: It was more important to you to fit in than it was to excel at the level you were capable of. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's it's a very um, it's an intense emotion to revisit because you know then you think, well, what could I have done? And how Mm -hmm. how do you train somebody to not give a shit about what people think? And like, how do how do you catch this? And like, you know, you could go down the rabbit hole of all the ways I could have done it differently. But the truth of the matter is. As a young woman, I didn't feel worthy enough. And bottom line, the issue is I didn't feel worthy enough. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, as a woman and as a young girl, I would imagine so many people feel the same way. And I know for a fact.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Everyone's human. That's the thing. I mean, you know, some people, maybe the majority of people listening to this might struggle to connect with or relate to, you know, the high highs of your career and going to the Olympics and all of that. But that experience that you just related, I think is highly relatable, especially particularly to young female athletes yeah, or young females in general, because I, th- I I don't think it's a thing that many guys go through. Yeah. But you can see it with young girls all over the place.
0: All over the place. and. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's just we're catching it faster. You know, like we're able to catch it faster. People are becoming more aware, coaches can become more mm-hmm. aware, parents, friends, peers can become more aware when someone's like, I'm not good enough. I don't want this person to be mad at me. You know, that's being caught faster, I think, so that these young women can actually move up a little a little better and feel yeah. a little stronger and a little more empowered and you know, I say all this, and it's—I'm so human. Like, I don't have a problem with saying I, like, knew that I was amazing, and also freaked out that people wouldn't like me.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, but, you yeah, know, the idea—so real. That idea of I'm not good enough, but but also the idea of it's not okay to be too good.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Y- yeah. Too much. And not yet enough you syndrome. still
1: you still <laughs> stumble forward, and you know, continue to excel as you mature as an athlete
0: yeah, so uh, that must
1: have been a little war that you were waging in your in your in your consciousness, yeah, it
0: it's a trip to think back to when you're young and to start unpacking. you know, I don't know if you've ever done stuff like this where you just go back and it's not just the past ten years, but it's the ten before that, and then you start to Trust realize, me. yeah, you yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you have uh-huh. <laughs> just gonna throw that out there, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um it's it's so fascinating to see. Uh, the patterns Mm -hmm. and the different things that you you thought were just this problem and you need to push down. And when you can finally just say it and be like, I was afraid of being too much and I was not, I didn't think I was enough and just say it and like get it off your body and let it out of your system. It's like, okay, I feel better now. And now where do I start?
1: (laughs) Right, and it's (laughs) confusing because those two ideas seem at odds with each other, how can you possibly harbor both of those thoughts at the same time?
0: It goes back to the right. two thoughts part, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, I can't have both of those. So it just must be one. And I just need to stick with it and deal with it and shove it down and move on and keep competing and make everybody happy. And then it's like, whatever, you know, and that right. was my mindset is it's just like, well, i just keep going.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The, the the alcoholic disposition is you feel like you're superior to everybody and you know more than anybody else and you're more capable than anyone else. And at the same time, you're a complete piece of shit and don't deserve anything. Yeah. And those two identities coexisting at the same time. Yeah. Neither of which are true.
0: Right. And we create these stories that become such a reality. And especially if you're an imaginative soul and you have all of these, you know, little fairy delicate, tales in your mind. Uh, artistic
1: sensibility, <laughs> <Yeah>. Caroline.
0: <laughs> like nothing is in like a linear sequence in your uh-huh. brain. You've got like 12 different Alice in Wonderlands going on. So it's like, oh, that must be true. Oh, that must be true. Well, that's true, you know, and you're picking from all these parts of yourself. And I think that's where I could, that was a blessing, but it could also be a curse right. for me as a swimmer and as a human in general. Um it was a lot to unpack when I finally did i was uh-huh. there's a lot of shame that comes with that because yeah. you feel i think what I started to really pick apart i guess I don't know if that's the right word, but dissect was how is it possible to hold space for something like that like how is it possible to hold space for um Parts of you that you have a lot of shame in, parts of you that you have a lot of um, grief, like you, you grieve parts of yourself mm-hmm. with people pleasing, which is a weird thing as well. Um, and also not sound like a victim all the time or mm-hmm. like you're complaining. Mm-hmm. You know, So doing that works hard because you don't know how to say it and and feel like you can own it and claim it because you don't wanna complain. You don't yeah. wanna sound like you're complaining well, You don't wanna be to a people. burden to
1: other people too
0: mm-hmm. with that. So I just didn't. And I just didn't for however long. And how'd that work out? Horribly. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at (laughs) voicingchange.media. All right, so uh, by the time you're a senior in high school, though, you're crushing it. I assume you're getting recruited at all these colleges. You're probably rocking out the NAG, you know, <sighs> records and all that kind of stuff at that point.
0: Yeah. Um, so my college recruiting experience was really interesting. I went to Arizona, Texas, Northwestern, Florida, Cal, and Stanford. Mm-hmm. Stanford. <laughs> my mom was like, "Let's go to California." Yeah. You know, <laughs> my dad's like, "No." Uh, so I ended up having to choose between Arizona and Florida because I wanted to train with the guys. Mm-hmm. I loved training with Those guys. Those are
1: the only two programs where they train together. Yeah. End up choosing. So what was Florida. that about? The, why was why was that important? Uh,
0: this is this is like kind of strange. So um, I somehow knew that first of all, I trained with guys at Lakeside. Tons of guys. There was like five people on the senior team that were girls. The rest were dudes. Mm-hmm. My brothers were. I grew up around guys, like a lot of guy cousins. I just I liked that energy for training. Um, I didn't even know what it was like to really train with all girls, so I was sort of just biased right off the start. But I also knew that the men backstrokers in the 200 were equivalent to what I wanted to be in the 200 free. I didn't know times, but I remember my brother saying to me, if you want to go really fast and you're 200 free you need to train with dudes in the 200 back uh-huh. cause it's the same time. And I was like, whatever that means. But so, so right. you know, I checked the box of looking at University of Florida, palm trees, like Mike DeBoer's best friend, Martin Wilby was one of the coaches, um, you know, men and women's team, warm weather and a lot of male backstrokers mm-hmm. so I can train with them. Isn't that mm-hmm. weird, and I ended up doing it my whole career too
1: right well you're you're somebody who has a lot of guy friends yeah. like it, it feels like most of your friends are dudes, yeah, you know, yeah. so not I think the word masculine has a pejorative when used in association with somebody who's a woman, but there's like a there is a masculine aspect to how you carry yourself socially,
0: yeah, yeah, I like yeah. to hang
1: <laughs> yeah, and you're super tight with your brother,
0: yeah, yeah, and I I really needed that experience mm-hmm. and I wanted that experience and and then he ended up going there. Right. And that was like a he dream. He transferred country. though, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot that went on with that. Just a lot of Yeah, there was a lot that went on with uh-huh. that. But you know, Greg Troy recruited me to University of Florida. Um and he was my main coach throughout the years there. And that, you know, that's the whole up and down relationship between right. him and I. Um but, yeah, so I went to University of Florida. ended up signing with them, full scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, went in my freshman year. Oh, man, I had the best freshman year um, out of all the years, really, actually. Um, 200 free, 500 free at SECs. Won them at SECs, was second in both at NCAAs. And then my sophomore year came around and I had so many expectations and I just swam like crap. I mean, it was a rough year for me. I um, So
1: what what was the change? Like, what do you attribute that dip to?
0: Expectations. Yeah. So,
1: so suddenly you're this artistic personality who kind of just goes with the flow and suddenly you're in a position where you're actually paying attention to all that stuff that everybody had been telling you all along that you needed to pay attention to yeah. and it had the opposite effect.
0: Yeah. So all of a sudden I had to pay attention to times, like you said, you know, uh-huh. Um. And coming in as a freshman, there's no expectation. It's just, you know, go. And Greg Troy, you know, put a lot of pressure on me my sophomore year. He also had me training in the distance group. So Anthony Nasty was my coach. And mm-hmm. Nasty is amazing. He's the greatest human. But every day I'd walk out on the pool deck, on the outdoor pool deck where the distance group trained. And he would say, why are you out here? I, I don't know why you're out here. And uh-huh. I'm like, I don't either. I don't, you know, yeah. I cannot do four 1000s for time, right? Like, that's not the way I train. Right. So, I started um, <laughs> I started doing this distance training and, and stepping out of the weight room and then into the pool more and training straight distance and my body didn't respond. Mm. I have pretty sensitive adrenals. And so, it was like, boom, I was, you know, severely underweight. I wasn't training well, I wasn't competing well. Um, I got sick a few times. I was also in an unhealthy relationship for the first year of my life. And so it was just like coming from every angle was like the great storm of, yeah. oh dear God, like now I have to like prove myself and people don't like me again and I'm not well and I don't know what to do.
1: Um, was there pressure to lose weight? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Every day I went on the pool deck, I was told either you know, tighten it up, or go on an extra run mm. this week, or, um, you know, there were specific groups for extra runs and stuff, and I was not anywhere near needing to do an extra run. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, uh, that was a really really hard time for me. I, I didn't know either how to. I didn't have a voice. I didn't speak up. I didn't say a damn word you know, cause I believed in what was going on. I believed mm-hmm. in it. And I just remember being so confused. Like, I don't understand why I'm being told these things. Like, why am I not enough? <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're back to that again. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you have a certain level of success in your, you know, you're this big fish in a small pond in Kentucky. Yeah. But then, you know, for people that are unfamiliar, like the University of Florida was a Mecca of swimming. Yeah. You were in that bubble pool, right? That like- Yeah. That epic architectural yeah. pool. That, yeah. Is that still there? Mm-hmm. I love that pool.
0: Yep. With um, a little five-lane outdoor pool.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, Greg Troy, <laughs> legendary coach, Anthony Nesty, Olympic gold medalist in the Hunter Fly from Suriname, Suriname. right? Suriname. I remember they, when he won the gold medal, they, like, they put him on the currency, like he was such a national hero. Uh,
0: oh, yeah. He, he would go back yeah. for parades and they'd right. you know, parade him around in, in a chair, you know, the whole, the whole yeah, deal. I and know, right. he married this beautiful, tall, uh, redhead woman and they had the most amazing little girl. Like, I mean, mm. he was just fantastic. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, honestly, unfortunately he was the distance coach. So I didn't have a lot right. of interaction with him after sophomore year.
1: What was the decision that you needed to go into the distance program? Because, I mean, that ends up being your thing, but that wasn't what you arrived thinking you were gonna be doing.
0: He wanted me to swim the mile. <laughs> he
1: because, wanted me to because I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. Um, well, he was, was kind of right.
0: I, yeah. I mean, I was good at the five hundred. That was like the, the eight
1: hundred meters. Too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I, I wasn't mentally a miler. Mm. That wasn't my thing. I was a very much five hundred that went toward the two hundred and not the mm-hmm. other way. Um, but I mean, ugh, the amount we trained. And, it was, you know, John's interview with you. Oh my God. I mean, we were training four times a day.
1: Four times a day? Yeah, we had
0: morning practice. We had weights in dry land and we had afternoon practice. So morning, go to class, go to weights, go back to dry
1: land, go to afternoon practice, eat, go so to bed. So two, two, two pool sessions and two gym sessions every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I was And you're looking at like tapped. maybe 15,000... Yards a day easy, or something, easy.
0: yeah. Some days way more, uh-huh. but I was just tapped, you know? And so I think there was a, a belief that I needed more training. And I remember one day I walked into the pool deck sophomore year and it was like four 2000, no, nine, one, nine 1650s.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding, yeah. Rich. Like I start crying, like immediately start like, and. I was. I didn't know what to do. Sixteen
1: fifty is a mile,
0: so and Nesty, nine, nine
1: one yeah. mile repeats in the pool.
0: I mean, let's put it this way: it takes from two until like seven. Mm-hmm. So I just started crying.
1: Unlike and, the eighteen minutes or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so Nesty comes up to me and he puts his hands on my shoulders and he was like, "You're gonna be okay." I'm like, I don't know if I am mm. actually. You know, I'm gonna give this a try, but um, he they pulled me out at four. So I. That day I only did four, but I'll I'll never forget. Uh, I got out at four, they still had five more. They didn't finish till like seven, by the way, it's seven p.m. And I called Mike DeBoer, and I'm sitting on the side of the pool, the outdoor pool, like over in a corner, on my little flip cell phone. You know, it's like two thousand five and a half or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I just said something's not right. I'm not so, I'm not doing what I need to be doing here. Like something isn't right. And and he was just he talked me through it. Like you know. What are you training? What's going on? Whatever. I guess what happened was he ended up talking to one of the coaches, Wilby. Wilby talked to Troy. And it was like, we need to switch around her training again. Like she can't be training this mm-hmm. way. It's not working for her. So they end up putting me back in the weight room two extra days a week and putting me in the middle distance group and breaststroke group, like breaststroke I am. And I started swimming way better, mm. like lights out. So, you know, the balance of that, but also I think as as I sort of have reflected on that feeling seen from mike and then having a conversation with my coach and connecting on that level and having a real conversation about what's happening with my body why my cycles are gone you know why i'm sick all the time why my blood work sucks like getting real with the actual biological effects of mm-hmm. what's gone on inside my body with that overtraining was eye opening for them and also you know for me because <laughs> mm-hmm. i didn't i 've never been overtrained before really like i didn 't understand what that felt like um, so that really was a um, the first time in my life I saw the the combination of the mind body working together to um kind of pivot me back on course right right i right, didn't right. have that connection before yeah. i always you know so to, to kind of refer back to what I was saying earlier. I always sort of felt weird because I had that innately. I knew that I was a somatic experiencer and I felt things in my body, but I didn't understand that the brain and the body were working together mm-hmm. to feel things, and that where you feel one, you feel the other.
1: It's um, very similar to John Moffat's yeah. trajectory because mm-hmm. he was, you know, a guy who couldn't handle that kind of volume, but had the self-awareness and the boundaries, the healthy boundaries to say like, I'm not going to that morning workout. Like it's not in service to the goals that I've set or of the team. And I think people don't understand how difficult it is to, to create that boundary because you're part of this program that's legendary and this is what we do here. So yeah. get in the pool and yes. don't ask questions.
0: I used to have my academic advisor, Tim, I pull me out of workouts because he knew how drained and tired I was, Uh like my grades were suffering. And he would just have me sit in the OSL, the Office of Student Life over in the corner and tell coach that I had a tutor, quote unquote, because I was so drained. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I would just sleep.
1: And it takes a long time to emerge out of that.
0: Super long. I felt very guilty, held a lot of guilt there because it felt like everyone else is training, but I was also going through trauma. Like I was also going through... A very unhealthy situation with a relationship, and so not only that, my whole system's in sympathetic twenty four seven, showing up to the pool, you know, with zero hours of sleep because I'm up all night the night before, going through whatever I'm going through, and I get to the, you know, that I wasn't even accounting for that, like I didn't realize how much that was a playing a part in my performance, mm-hmm. and it was like eye opening to me to finally realize that that was working against me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like all of these factors Mm -hmm. were working against me. And if I didn't align myself in the right path, mind and body, I wasn't gonna go anywhere.
1: Mm -hmm. But you emerge out of that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Senior year NCAAs was like the big emergence out of it. I I slowly emerged, but um, that was my, probably my favorite performance. Was that
1: 2008? Yeah. So 2008, you... Break the NC2A record in the 500 free, yeah, and that was the longest-standing record at the time, right? It was it Janet Evans? Yeah, I mean that's pretty epic.
0: That was my favorite performance
1: what of my life. Was it Like 4:33 or something like that.
0: Yeah, and I um, I ripped two suits before that, and I remember just being totally in flow. Like I don't remember that race at all. I touched the wall and I had oodles of energy. I could have gone for another 500. And I remember just being like, holy shit, like trials are in three months, I'm gonna do this. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember that thought going through my mind, like the moment that I touched the wall. I'm going to the Olympics. Yeah, and also with that comes a lot of you know, pressure. Mm -hmm. But uh, that moment was really powerful for me because it was the first time that I felt like I really hit that stride of feeling and flow and seeing the struggle throughout my college career Come to a place where I could put aside these distractions that I had, you know, going on at the exact same time, and use the tools that I had to make something happen. Mm. You know, it felt like.
1: And wow. What were the <laughs> what were those tools specifically at that time?
0: I went from not doing any sort of mindset work at all, or really understanding what that was, to focusing in on that kind of stuff, breath work. I would I don't know if you'd call it meditation. But I'd journal, I'd
1: um, write, visualization, I felt
0: visualization, imagery. I wrote all my goals and images and pictures. And mm-hmm. none of my goals were in times. My locker had like the pictures or like an <laughs> icon of something, like uh-huh. a banana. And that banana reminded me of like whatever I wanted to do. It was, I, you know, I was yeah. weird. So, <laughs> um, So that was a big factor in that, those tools. But also, I think I felt uh, I felt very aligned with with coach Troy at that time, because um, right before that year, we had a huge, you know, conversation about the way I perform, what I need to go and do in practice. Um, And a lot of that stemmed around like. Tempo work, visualization work, like our conversations were about that. Like he saw me, you know, for the first time in that relationship as a coach to swimmer. And I was able to really turn that around. And so I think it was the connection mm. with him. Like the connection that I felt finally, after however many years right. of feeling trust. no connection with this person. Yeah, trust, communication, clarity, Um so instead of this uh, resistance that we had, like he doesn't get me, I don't get her. He doesn't get me, I don't get her. It was like one conversation, one one two hour conversation could really change the trajectory of what I was gonna do based on sharing what works for Mm -hmm. me and how I can be a better student of whatever it is that I need to get done through the methods that my brain understands, the learning styles my
1: brain. So forming some kind of partnership. Yeah. Type mm-hmm. of relationship, yeah. So trials comes up three months later.
0: Three months later.
1: Uh, it's an interesting one because you end up making the Olympic team by getting fourth in the 200 freestyle, but you got a bunch of fours, right? And a fifth, like- Yeah, and, and, 100 free, 400 free. Yeah. I
0: barely, and then I would have yeah. medaled at the actual Olympics with the times I went, so. I know. It was a pretty. So it's,
1: it's like a. Yeah. It's like a. It's got to be like mixed emotions because you didn't actually qualify in an individual event. Mm-mm. Yeah. You were just one place shy of of getting that. You still yeah. medal at the Olympics in the relay. You swam the preliminaries and then and also on the final. So they bumped you up.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you just rock out a split they didn't expect or.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is where things kind of get interesting. My Olympic trials was uh, a pretty emotional ride for me. Um, I was going through like the thick of some traumatic experiences, literally at the trials, like in the process of that meeting.
1: Like relationship stuff? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I think you know as I've as I've worked through that too, um, that is where some of that resentment and shame comes from because I think to myself, could I have been better? Had I not had that kind of experience?
1: Distracted (laughs) by a boyfriend situation that wasn't working out, right?
0: Yeah. Um. So let's see. I made it in the well, the 400 free. I missed it by a spot. Two hundred free, I made it, and then the hundred free and the eight hundred free, I was like fifth, fifth, fourth, Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And you know, the the trials are so intense; (laughs) it's the most intense meet, way more intense than the Olympics. But you know, gearing up toward the Olympics, this was the year that prelims were at night Mm -hmm. and finals were in the morning in Beijing. Mm -hmm. So. you know, really having to change how I trained. Like I was a night swimmer. Now I had to be a both swimmer. Right. <laughs> you know, now I had to be a morning, a prelim, a final, the whole thing. Uh but you know, that was it was a really important time. Um Olympic trials were a really important time to get to the to the games. I think I wish I would have made it an individual event for sure. I still feel that. Uh but I also I'm so proud of myself for how I handled everything else that was going on and the way that I was able to show up during the darkest part of my life. Mm. Like the, it, I was in the darkest, one of the darkest parts of my life before I even made the team. And so, you know, yes, the transition was really dark, but that part right before was really hard to pull myself out of to Were get you there. keeping
1: all that private though? Or yeah. were you letting people help you?
0: I had one person helping me. Mm-hmm my counselor at school. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Hmm. My parents had no idea. My teammates, my roommates knew because they lived with me, um, but I didn't have any, you know, conversations with people right. about it.
1: And Greg my tried brother, it didn't know or, mm-hmm.
0: uh, You know, they did, but nothing's gonna,
1: complicated. Yeah, they can't yeah. do anything about it. So when you reflect back on your Olympic experience, I mean, how do you... How do you think about it now versus then?
0: I feel like it was the beginning of my life, <laughs> in a weird way, like it was like the first of so much to come, and it was a springboard for sure for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it was the beginning of my life in that I was able to to look at. I'm able to look at it and know that I. Have sort of been reborn again from that experience. Like I was a certain way leading up to it. And then this experience happens. And it's easy for people to say, sure, you go to the Olympics, of course you're reborn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this big achievement. But personally, internally, the way my nervous system was wired, the way my whole body and my being are in this world, I was able to sort of start there and say, what's been working and what hasn't? and And, you know, how can I go from here? Did I know that at the time? No. Did I know that 10 years after? No. Do I look at it now and say, oh, wow, (laughs) that was a beautiful thing. And I'm so glad that I can look at that experience and Mm -hmm. say, holy shit, I stood on the podium in front of the world. And also can see every age of Caroline Burkle, Mm. two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, every age of myself there showing up to that podium, every single age until that moment. And that's really special because to me, it doesn't symbolize this like 200 free, like, yay, that's great. But it's to get there, it took all versions of me. Mm -hmm. And then to go from there, it's gonna take a whole different Caroline. (laughs) And I think that feeling and that realization is powerful to feel that you can have stages of your life like that.
1: What do people not fully understand about the Olympic experience. I mean, I suspect it's gotta be disorienting to go from, mm. you know, churning out sets in Gainesville to suddenly being, you know, foisted on the international stage and being on television in a bathing suit, you know, like <laughs> yeah. for all the world to, you know, cast its their judgments on and their opinions.
0: It's definitely um it really challenges your focus, it challenges your ability to stay in your lane and to be able to to block things out really well, uh, especially with media and mm-hmm. with, with other things going on. Luckily then we didn't have a lot of media. There wasn't, we right. didn't have phones at the Olympics.
1: Right. We didn't have I mean face, Facebook was online, but it wasn't, yeah. there was no iPhone or anything like that. No social yeah, media,
0: yeah. no iPhones. We didn't have any technology in the village. The village is a very, you know, dense experience there's just a lot of people obviously vying for the same thing so the energy is just palpable you can feel it from everybody but there's also this camaraderie Mm -hmm. it's beautiful you know you see every country and every walk of life and uh it's a really special experience and you see a lot that you've never seen before too as a girl from Kentucky and Florida and I mean I'm seeing the world right you're seeing the world right in front of you and you have to really check yourself with what you've you know, been thinking your whole life and and put your judgment aside and be able to to hone in on really what you're doing, accept everybody and kind of move forward. Because that's the point of the Olympics, right? Right. Is to accept everybody. The rings symbolize that unity of the world together. So it is a special experience where you're trying to compete against each other, but you're really trying to bring everybody together as the world Uh into this special place to achieve this goal.
1: Do you feel like in the wake of that, you, you departed Beijing thinking, I'm just starting. Like I got a bunch of force and I was on this relay and I got a medal, but you know, my individual time would have meddled in this event. Like I'm getting back to work.
0: No, no. <laughs> um, I knew I was bummed that I couldn't have meddled on my own, but I was so burnt out mm-hmm. at that point. I was beyond ready. To walk away, and to run away, mm-hmm. um, you know. I was listening to Apollo's podcast mm-hmm. with you, and he just, you know, some of the things he said struck a chord too. Just with you know the weight of gold and how that all works, right? right. And, and we can go down that path, but it's a it's a whole, um, it's a whole experience of. What now? (laughs) Right. And that's the easiest way to say it. But there really is no better way to say it. Yeah. It it's daunting. And also you can't be bothered to go back into the fire sometimes like we're so good as athletes at focusing and at pivoting our focus. So we pivot to running and you don't look back that way because you're really damn good
1: at what you do. So You're gonna focus this way instead of focusing. But you don't know what to focus that spotlight on. That's the problem. And on paper, like from a academic perspective, you know, who wouldn't wanna hire an Olympian? These people know how to work hard. They know how to set a goal. They know how to achieve it. They know how to show up under pressure and overcome obstacles. Like they just seem like the ultimate candidate for the marketplace, but it doesn't work that way. And I think the, the more often than not, it is the weight of gold where they become, they have this existential crisis. Like, what am I supposed to do now? I've never thought about this because getting to where they got to achieve what they achieved required every ounce of focus and discipline and intention. There just wasn't any time to ponder what comes after. And no. there aren't structures in place to help athletes with that transition.
0: No, no. So
1: that's why I think that movie was so, you know, so powerful and instructive.
0: It was incredible. I watched it a few times and was just sobbing my eyes out. Mm. Because again, it goes back to that same conversation of how can you be feeling two things at once? Like, so proud, like, sick, you know, Lolo Jones, like, sick. I just won this medal and also I'm making smoothies, you know. So it's like, how can you be so angry and harbor this anger and frustration? At what you've done and also be so proud and so excited that you've done this thing and mm-hmm. can't wait to like tell your friends like you know, even though they know. Can't right. wait to do all these other things. And I but had But you no can't dad.
1: tell your friends that you feel that way.
0: No. So much shame with mm-hmm. that because they would think you're an entitled, spoiled brat, or you know, that was my story. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hear that sob story, you know, and Michael Phelps says it really well too. He says the same thing. Like, I I couldn't possibly tell people I was depressed. I had 700 gold medals. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way I could tell somebody that I'm depressed. Like, there's no way that I could share, you know, that I've had suicidal thoughts. There's no way that I could share that, you know, I was in an, a traumatic situation or relationship. There's no way that I could share that, um, you know, God, I, I that 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 I hated myself at a certain part of you know day four at the Olympic. You know, there's no mm-hmm. way you can share these specific feelings mm-hmm. because what then? What would what would people think of you?
1: Right, <laughs> right. You're 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 a bulletproof Olympian.
0: Yeah, you've got to be Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be this special um, force that you know people would kill to be in your shoes and and. Um, so yeah, you could never say something that would, um, jeopardize your Olympic status. Yeah. Because then if people find out and not only people, but media, let's say media finds out and they're, oh, she's complaining she's about- got a bad Yeah, she's got a bad attitude. Yeah. So there's- She's there's, a bad Olympian. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And the, the, um, psychology of it is changing because I think there's a lot of awareness now around the fact that you can be depressed or having a difficult time or going through something traumatic Mm -hmm. and also perform. Mm -hmm. That both of those are okay. Again, Mm -hmm. back to the
1: two things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, Michael is to be credited, you know, considerably for the work that he's done to expand that awareness. Huge. And I mean, when you, you've, you were on the Olympic team with him. Yeah. Like, is there, when you're, you've spent a lot of time with him, I presume. Yeah, like, you know him great. well. Uh, y- you know, was there any, indi- like, I'm sure your 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 relationship with him is when you're at swim meets, right? So yeah. you don't see that aspect of it.
0: Yeah, no, and we saw it with Michael though, just because he's he's vulnerable. Like he could show, he wears his emotions, you know, mm-hmm. on his sleeve. And so you could see him struggling, but you don't know to what extent. You don't know if that's just, you know, at at that point in time, we're all so laser focused. You don't know if that's just like with training Mm -hmm. (laughs) or with, you know, not going times you want to go or whatever it is. You just assume that that person is struggling for another reason, Mm -hmm. not with worth, even though I was struggling with worth. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can feel it, but we just never, it was like, hush, put, no one would ever utter those words. Yeah we all feel this way, but no one's saying anything. You know. So he was like, the cat's out of the bag, like he broke the mold there of, we've all been feeling this and uh-huh. somebody just needs to say it. yeah. Cause we're all feeling it and walking around with this like weird thing where everyone's awkward. and Oh yeah, I'm great, how are you? I'm great, you know, years later. And it's like, <laughs> that's not the case. Like, let's just say it how it is. And also uh-huh. you can be struggling and be proud of your experience at the same time. Right. No one's telling you, you can't have both. Yeah. You know, and and I think that a lot of us felt like we couldn't have both. Mm.
1: There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend, Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you kind of cut and run, right? Like you just, you just walked away from the pool for a, a little while. I mean, you found your way back to it, but you took this break.
0: So I cut and run. I didn't look one direction from a pool for, years first time i stepped inside of a pool years years probably two and a half oh wow i retired in 2010 first time i stepped foot back into a pool was clark's olympic trials Mm. and that was like really hard for me Mm. um i cried so much at that meet by myself in the hotel room in omaha and i was so proud of my brother like i have never seen a better race than his Race to make the Olympic team mm-hmm. in that 200 breaststroke. He's hands down the best underwater pullout kid in the world. I mean, he's insane. He's so strong, and I was so proud of him and so emotional there at that meet. Um, but I, of course, I didn't show anybody. I cried in my hotel room because of Are course I any couldn't be other seen.
1: Brother <laughs> sister duos that have both become Olympians. There must be uh, Crippens, I believe. Uh-huh. Um.
0: Or no, maybe I'm thinking of something else. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Maybe in other sports. Right. In swimming there's sister, sisters like Haley and uh, Alyssa Anderson. Uh-huh. No, but that was mm-hmm. that was the first time. So you can imagine I ran away and the first time I come back is around the exact same world, the world I ran away from. Right. And I had a purpose. My purpose was to support my brother. Mm-hmm. So I was able to again, block out my stuff handle it on my own and be there for him. And I treated that whole Olympic trials like I was competing. My ass was up at 4 a.m. going on a run, getting ready, eating breakfast, like the whole like I felt like I was in the experience, but I I was not yeah.
1: in the experience.
0: Like I wasn't in that experience. Um, but so he makes the team and then we go to London. And that again, you know, it's like my second meet back. Uh-huh. And that was really difficult for me. So throughout this whole process, um Difficult but proud. So I mean, I can't tell you. Like I was way more proud of my brother than I ever was of myself. It's crazy how that works. Uh, And I get to – oh, well, throughout that process, I was like struggling with some body dysmorphia, some disordered eating, wasn't healthy, let's Mm -hmm. put it that way, Um, at all. Like just full stop, wasn't healthy, wasn't eating, wasn't taking care of myself, didn't feel worthy of love period. I didn't have that. My system had been in overdrive. I had been in sympathetic literally for years Mm. and I had not come down. My body was churning every last morsel of energy just to get through that meat. And I got back from that meat and I just like crashed. Like my my body just started to break down. Like it was this whole thing um, with that. But that was the that was sort of the first realization right. that i had i wasn't healthy right
1: so between 2008 the olympics you walking away from the sport and 2012 when you you don't really return to swimming but you return to the culture right to support yeah. your brother a lot there's a lot that happened right yeah. Yeah. so i want to spend a little bit of time here i mean you you end up you know, you're trying to find your way, you get a fashion degree, you got Mm -hmm. to fit right? Mm -hmm. And you're working with some apparel brands and you're employed, you're trying to figure it out. Um, But I feel like there's a a crucial event that takes place that I think, um, you know, puts you deeper into that psychological hole Mm -hmm. and that happens around 2010. So can we talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so, I had transferred from the Fitham OC campus to the LA campus, so I was living with Haley Pearsall, mm-hmm. um, and Aaron came to visit for like mm. three months. <laughs> Classic Aaron move.
1: Uh, Is he like living in Costa Rica now or something? I guess, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but he came to live with us. He just lived with us. I was on the corner of La Cien and I got an Olympic. Like, what am oh, I doing right here? In de-
1: right in LA, LA. Oh uh
0: huh. And. I was, you know, I was working for Lululemon. Um, I just like, I didn't know what to do, you know? So um, I was sitting in my apartment one night and uh, I get like multiple calls in on my phone, one after the next. I'm like, who is this unknown number? I don't understand what's going on. And uh, then I got a bunch of text messages and voicemails um, that were left and uh I had just retired from swimming, so literally a month retired, mm. fresh. I had been training, you know, for context at Fullerton Aquatic Club uh, with Sean Hutchison, and
1: and what was the intention of the training at that time? Because this is two this is two years after the Olympics. Like, were you yeah. thinking your was it because you just couldn't let go of it and didn't know what else to do, or did you have designs on some some lofty goals? <sighs>
0: I I was just running. I was chasing different things to check off the list that Mm -hmm. I could just do. Like I needed something to feel worthy. I needed to have something to show. So I just kept doing things. I was collecting accolades and degrees and all these things. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll just do all these things distract myself.
1: You're living on Olympic in La Cienega and you're driving to Fullerton to swim. I mean, that's but, a hike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did that just until I retired. And then I was like, okay. I can't do this anymore. Cause you had to transfer campus for for FITM. I got it. But um, I felt like I just had to prove myself in the sport. You know, like I, I felt like I needed to finish it off and prove myself. And, um, and when I retired, at, I retired at Irvine Nationals. Um, I knew, I knew, My last race. I knew it going into it. I knew the moment I did the two hundred free. I was in lane one. I swam horrible. I got out. I started went to the diving well. Put my goggles on. Tried to not let anybody see me cry. And Amanda Beard, of course, comes over and puts her arm on my shoulder. And she was, you know, she was an angel for me. My whole career, by Mm -hmm. the way, she was an angel at the training camp with some coach situations. She was an angel, you know. Afterward, she just said, "Like you're gonna be okay." You may not know what what you're gonna do, but you're gonna be okay. And I was like, okay. And you know, this is coming from somebody that's like started the sport seven different times, right. and you know, had a crazy, cool career and child, and you know, all these things. And so, I just let it be, and I just walked away from the sport. But I walked away from the sport because I was tired of the politics and the feelings that I got about my worth as a human being, and. My body and my, but like I was just tired. I, I mm-hmm. just needed to get away. Like it was so exhausting to always feel like I was like an object of or a project or you know something that I couldn't, I couldn't uh, figure out how to find my love for it again. So like why not just run away? Mm-hmm. I don't want to keep trying and forcing this if I'm just going to feel angry at it. And that was my reason for stopping. I was tired. I was tired of what was going on, I was tired of feeling like I was just, like I said, this object or this project or not enough or needed to be somebody for these coaches or these people, I just like wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it was such a powerful feeling within me that I was just so tired of that. And so I just ran away. <laughs> and that's when I had a lot of different things happening. Right. <laughs> but I, I fully <laughs> ended my career on a very intense like th- bodily feeling that I had to go right like I had to go like it was just too much for me um and also like I got out what I put in that I that I, you know that I got what I came for <laughs> mm-hmm. I did what I wanted to do as a little it all girl on
1: the on the pool deck
0: yeah um Oh, I just feel it in my body when I talk yeah, about that. Yeah, I can see that it. I can moment, see that. That moment was so powerful. It was. I was sitting on the side of the pool, and I was ending this thing. It's like you're breaking up with this thing you've been with for 25 years or mm-hmm. whatever. And it was just this. This is what. This is how it is.
1: This is, this is how it's going to end. Just like, kind of petering out in a, in a local meet.
0: Yeah, with and a
1: subpar performance. Yeah, yeah,
0: subpar performance. Really not good and. Proud of myself for continuing, but, you know, I just wanted to prove myself. And uh-huh. when I realized that, I just didn't need to be in it anymore. I needed to find something else and I knew that I could. And I knew that I could, could be rebirthed in my life. And I had that feeling that that would happen. Uh, I just didn't know how. Yeah, I had no idea how. I had no idea what I was going to do.
1: Well, you moved to La Cienega <laughs> and Olympic and you start working for a Lululemon, apparently.
0: And then I walked the Santa Monica stairs every <laughs> yeah, day. That's <okay. laughs> my workout. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so I moved there. I live with Haley. And then Aaron came to, came to live with us. And I was just very depressed during that time. Um, I don't really recall any moments that felt like Pure joy for me, you know mm-hmm. i um I was really struggling during that time. Mm-hmm. that was really hard for me I, it's why I started to hide mm-hmm. I started to inch my way into the little hole step by step and
1: it was right around this time that you start you got this evening occurred where you get mm-hmm. these weird text messages, yeah um
0: and that felt like the last straw for me, like. That was mm-hmm. like the last straw for me. So I, I get. So explain these texts. explain what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my coach, Sean from Fast, uh, was out with Coach Bowman one night. And I guess, you know, whatever they were doing, they decided to send me some vulgar text messages and voicemails. And it involved m- myself and, um, some of my brother and just things that were very traumatizing for me as a 20, I don't know, three-year-old mm-hmm. girl that had just retired from the sport and also run away from that exact thing, that exact experience of, you know, abuse in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And so I was just done. <laughs> like that that moment was traumatizing for me. And it felt like... um My my initial reaction was that I needed to turn them in, so I turned the messages in.
1: Right. So let's just contextualize it a little bit. Yeah. Sean Hutchinson was the swim coach at Fast, and you know was a well-regarded coach who had birthed many a career. Um, Bob Bowman is Michael, you know, famous for being Michael Phelps's coach. So you get these weird text messages from unknown numbers, and it turns out it's. Bob and Sean and they're off color, they're off putting, they're distasteful. We don't need to get into exactly what they said, but there's articles out there if you wanna read about it. Um, It's been reported in the press, Uh, but it was highly, highly inappropriate. And um, it also was a glimpse into, you know, some things that Sean had been doing that he shouldn't been doing with a a friend of yours, a swimmer, Mm -hmm. Ariana Kukors. Uh, that that then kind of precipitated um, after you report this uh, a whole kind of scandal with USA Swimming, not just with respect to Sean and his relation, his inappropriate relationship with with Ariana, and the kind of um, you know legal actions that took place in the wake of that, but also more broadly about how USA Swimming deals with these sorts of situations yeah. historically. Yeah. So So you get these weird text messages, you know. In them, you you respond, and you're like, "This isn't funny," you know, blah blah blah, and you report it at the time, right? So, is this like 2011,
0: 2010, 2011, the beginning of Uh eleven, or the middle of ten? And what does
1: USA Swimming say to you?
0: So I turn them in, and admittedly, you know, following my classic Caroline pattern. My first message to them was, "Please just do what you need to do and leave me out of this. I don't mm-hmm. want to make anybody upset." Mm-hmm. And that was my first reaction. But and being
1: the people pleaser that you are, I suspect it was even a struggle for you to decide to report them to begin with.
0: Very, very difficult.
1: Despite it being so highly inappropriate.
0: Very difficult. Um, Aaron actually was the one that encouraged me to to do it. You know, he's a very He's an advocate for like what's right in USA Swimming and he's he's been fantastic with that. Um, and so I said, okay, okay, look, I'll do it. I I didn't want to upset anybody. So I turned them in and, you know, I remember them asking me if I wanted to appear on a call. So I appeared on a call. Sean didn't show. Uh, Bob did show and he was apologetic and, you know, the whole thing. Um, and that was that. There was mm. never anything else done about it, and that I think.
1: Bob Bowman gets named to be an Olympic, Olympic coach. coach the my brother's year. coach, right? And so, no, nothing happens to Bob Bowman at all, except no. maybe some stern words from Frank Bush, and that's kind of right. it.
0: Yeah, that was it. And of course, I was so—I um, don't know if the word traumatized is correct, but it's really the only word that comes up for me that I just was hand, like, sure, you guys do it. You know, I, I just want to stay out of it. Please just leave me out of it. I didn't feel I had a voice to even insert myself into this situation and, and share how I felt and what my thoughts were and what my feelings were. Um, and I, I since have felt more empowered um, to talk about that mm-hmm. and how it's absolutely not okay. And it just shouldn't happen across the board, but man, did I just not feel like I had any voice in that at all?
1: There was no. And when you raised your voice, it didn't seem like it had any impact. I mean, Sean ended up no. paying a, a you know a greater price for for good reason, but none right. of this was reported until two thousand eighteen. So and you do was- this, and then it's all kind of dealt with behind the scenes. Eight years on later. one level or another. Yeah until 2018 when the OC register of all publications, uh, you know, does this deep dive investigative journalism into this story and the story breaks in this local paper and then it becomes like a national story.
0: Yeah, and that rocked me. Like that rocked me. Cause I had never, um, I ran away from it. Mm-hmm. I ran away from everything for those eight years. Every single thing that occurred in my life that, was not okay from, you know, a coach or a relationship or, you know, basically those two things. Um, I ran away from it all because I didn't know how to address it. I was sheepish, I didn't I didn't know how to even say anything. I it wasn't a big deal to to speak up then either. People don't do that. People never really did that. Mm-hmm. You know, that women didn't really speak up. I mean, Allie Raisman sort of put that on the map, right? Where you're just like, this isn't okay. Like I'm going to stand up for what's right, and and you you can't be speaking like this to young women. And I understood that I was 23, you know, and that I was a little bit older, and I was retired, quote unquote. But the the idea is that these things shouldn't be happening at all because if they were thinking it, then it was being thought when I was a swimmer, and being you know not just because it wasn't acted on then doesn't mean it's still mm-hmm. okay. Um, and so and nothing happened until 2018, and um. That was when they dug up all that stuff for Ariana's case and they called me. And, you know, they were like, Did this happen to you? And I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> of mm-hmm. course. I turned in the information. Like, what's going on? I was startled totally. Like, what's going on? Well, this is so and so. I need to know this because you're under investigation because we found files from Sean toward you. And I was just in that moment. Rich, like my whole being shut down because my body in fight or flight was just like, yeah. oh my God, like you're you're gonna die. Like that was how I reacted. And I was just literally on my apartment, my like second apartment in LA, my floor for a straight week. I don't think I ate one meal. I was on the phone with Jack every day, like mm-hmm. all day. I don't think I drank any water. I don't think I went out of my apartment. I was ordering in anything I needed. Like I I didn't wanna be seen. It was all of a sudden, like I was the bad guy. That was my view of it, Mm -hmm. is that I was now the bad guy. And I,
1: oh. Because Bowman's this huge hero too. Yeah, and and I
0: respected him as a coach. I really, really did. And I, you know, I didn't have any, that was a shock from him. I didn't have any problems with Bob, you know? So that was a shock from him, from Sean, no. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. You know, but- Yeah, and for people he, that are listening, I mean, Sean, it turns out had had you know developed a highly inappropriate relationship with Ariana dating back to beginning when she was 13 years old, like grooming her, mm-hmm. sexually assaulting her at 16, I believe, yeah. ultimately getting banned from the sport. I think they just settled the yeah. civil lawsuit. Um, I don't know if there's any update on what's going on with that guy, but he's Nobody not in swimming anymore. He yeah. but. Short of that story coming out in 2018, this was all being dealt with surreptitiously which is kind of par for the course for USA Swimming that time and time again has to weather these scandals and you would think they would learn their lesson and figure out a way to deal with this stuff above board but they seem to continue to trip on themselves and handle it miserably and it's, it's really reprehensible and inexplicable. I mean, I guess I can understand these people who are trying to cover their ass and you know, keep these things from being public scandals, but they consistently seem to do the wrong thing here. And this dates back decades. And I, don't, I think we've talked about this. I don't know if you know this, but, but my high school girlfriend was Kelly Davies and she was sexually harassed by our swim coach, Rick Curl. That was going on while I was in a relationship with her. This is like back in the, you know, like the early mid eighties. And, you know, it was a very different time back then. Um, That was settled civilly, privately for like $150,000 back in like 1988 or 86 or something like that. Uh, And resurfaced many years later because Kelly for reasons that I'm sure you can relate to, had a lot of unresolved trauma over this. And when she saw Rick Curl, when she turned on the television to watch Olympic trials on the deck, and it occurred to her like, this guy's still coaching and nobody knows what happened because this was dealt with in the way that it was dealt with, it became an intolerable situation. and. You know, she alerted USA Swimming. I don't think that they dealt with it as well as they should have at the time. Ultimately, it all came to light because the Washington Post, like the OC Register, cottoned onto the story and decided to, you know, pull on a few threads yeah. and expose the whole thing, which ultimately led to Rick Curl going to jail. But this was so long after the fact, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it was something that I'm sure USA Swimming thought was in the past and you know these things you know tend to not go away unless they're dealt with swiftly and responsibly
0: yeah what you don't deal with will always come back you know and across the board it always comes back full circle mm-hmm. like things that aren't dealt with whether it's personally or within an organization or whatever it is it's going to come back around it's not just gone and uh i think i always had a feeling it would <laughs> i just didn't mm-hmm. know when you know, I always like, I always felt like, how is this it? <laughs> like this can't really, that can't be it, right? Like something has to to come to the surface with this. Even if it's just bylaws and different things that come out that are, you know, governing the whole coaching body as, you know, USA Swimming coaching body as a whole, mm-hmm. like what do they need to do in order to pass certain ethical.
1: Right. Standard. Well, they seem to kind of adhere to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Like yeah. they have the hotline you can call if, yeah. if something happens and you can report it. But in the case of, of Sean, didn't the USA Swimming's general counsel like appointed this former FBI investigator mm-hmm. to do the sort of, you know, roll up your sleeves work and interview all these witnesses, yeah. but they ended up shutting her down. And in the case of Hutchinson, She was deprived of being able to interview certain critical people, including like Tara Torres in this situation. So the true story is never fully documented for the public record.
0: Yeah, and there's just, I I, I had to commute to Long Beach multiple times to do different things with lawyers and all this. I just, just, and I felt like, how is this, uh, how's this ever gonna be okay? There's so many layers to this. Like mm-hmm. so many people have these stories and these things about multiple people in in USA swimming and in USA gymnastics. And you know, in all right. these sports and these NGBs, it's like there's so much of this going on. And there's also great coaches. I mean, my club coach, oh my gosh, just gave me utmost respect for him. But it there's something's gotta change. And it's, you know, as we talk about with everything, it's gotta kind of wipe the system clean and start over. And that's the hard part is where do you even, how do you even mm-hmm. do that when there's been legends floating around forever? But, you know, back to what you were saying about people just trying to cover things up, I think everybody was just afraid to upset someone else who's afraid to upset someone else who's afraid to upset someone else. So everything just got swept under. Right. It.
1: And then there's you who doesn't want to upset anybody exactly. either. So you've suffered the trauma of having, you know, been in the middle of that experience itself. And then there's the <laughs> trauma of now this is public. And I'm a people pleasing person who doesn't want to rock the boat and wants to be well liked, yeah, and now all this attention is being directed at me,
0: right, and you know it's not just the text messages it's there's other stuff that goes on that people don't know, you know, comments on pool deck and little emails here and there, and the, you know it's like all different things throughout my career that I had to not only dig up and turn in mm-hmm. but say <laughs> out loud and that. In itself is like a whole trauma re-experience. You know that whole thing was just really flooded me, and this was like what two years ago, mm-hmm. three years ago,
1: two, two. Two and a half, March of, gosh, it feels 2018, like so much longer. I though.
0: think, yeah. Um, but the act of actually becoming aware, you know, it's kind of as interesting. The awareness piece in sport is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Like you hear Gervais talk about, like awareness is everything. Because I was so aware. And then I pushed it down. When I became aware again, and everything rose to the surface, it was like, whoosh! Mm-hmm. <laughs> my whole world
1: was just like,
0: holy crap!
1: Right? Because like, you hadn't you hadn't done anything to heal from any of that. You've just nothing. been compartmentalizing it,
0: compartmentalizing yeah. it, um, coping. All my coping strategies with food and with exercise, and I became so obsessed with these other things in order to feel like I could run from the things that had really hurt me that started with this pattern way long ago and it just carried on throughout my life. It's like not these little symptoms of things, right? It's like this underlying thing that I just couldn't speak up about or I was afraid to, you know, hurt people's feelings. So mm-hmm. I never did any of these things. And um when all that was unpacked and and my awareness was so high and my senses were out and I was so in tune with what was going on and holy crap, this is a big deal, Caroline, like you've been pushing down a lot of stuff. That was like a whole tornado Mm. of things in my life. It Mm -hmm. felt like my whole, it felt like my life was ending to be honest. Like at Mm -hmm. that time in 2018, I was like, I've been, essentially abused <laughs> for a really long time and I haven't even been able to say that. And you know, I don't and I'm not trying to laugh at that, but I'm just um of course I'm not, but I get so shy saying that because I I'm very sheepish at the fact that I didn't see that. Yeah. That I didn't I wasn't aware of how not okay that was. Mm-hmm. I thought it was normal to be given comments on pool deck mm-hmm. by a coach. I thought it was normal to be sent secret emails. I thought it was normal to have text messages. You know, I thought that stuff was normal. It means they liked me.
1: <laughs> right, and that's yeah. and this is what it took for you to confront that. So, on some yeah. level, as painful and as uncomfortable as it must have been when all of this, you know, was revealed in the way that it was, this compelled you to face these certain things and 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 wrestle with them so that you could ultimately heal.
0: Yeah, something had to crack. Mm-hmm. Well, What's
1: interesting things? is, and I think we talked about this around this time because we had a, some communication when these articles came out. Yeah, um, I was. I was confused because although it was picked up by the media, it went from the OC register, I mean, Sports Illustrated, ESPN wrote about it. This was also kind of right in the thick of Ronan Farrow, Me Too stuff as well. And I thought this was gonna blow up much bigger than it actually did. Most people aren't even aware of this. So did
0: I. It kind of went away. So did I. And I think there's so much that has happened in the swimming world that hasn't even come to the surface that could, (laughs) Uh Um, I did too, I did too. And I think the anticipation of that was terrifying because being exposed like that is there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse in the world than opening up CNN and seeing your name on the first headline. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was sitting in my apartment on the floor, just like in total shock, like what did I do wrong? And that that was where my brain was at. But was, you must have I been getting
1: calls and texts from oh, friends yeah. and getting a lot of support from people.
0: Tons of support. Ton, like, I mean, through the roof, letters, emails, this whole thing. But at the same time, where I was at was yeah. still, what did you do wrong, Caroline? People aren't going to like you here. You're going to lose, you know, your friends will be gone. Like, oh no, Michael doesn't know what to say. He, You're going to lose his friendship or Allison or, you know, these people that were under Bob and all this. Mm-hmm. And I just felt so paranoid that I was. never be
1: able to have a relationship with swimming again. That you it you're, like, sh- you're not yes. gonna be able to show up on the pool deck at Olympic trials to support your brother.
0: And that was everything. Like mm. that, that feeling that I was losing my world. And even though I had ran away from that world. Mm. <laughs> I was losing my world yet I had been running right. away from it for eight years. So I don't know why I thought I was losing it. But to me, I, and i still like honestly full disclosure full vulnerab- vulnerability here i still have some days where i'm like huh i wonder what they would think of me if i just saw them at the airport or like would things be okay yet like would things be normal mm. if i ran into you know some of my friends or whatever that i seemingly thought in my mind are mad at me even though i know for a fact they're not yeah um But again, that pattern and why is it that's ingrained in me that like I've upset, you know, the the men in power. And that was like, that was the thing for me was like these men in power. Like I didn't want Bob to be upset with me. Right. That was all I was telling Jack. That was literally all I was telling Uh Jack was I just don't want Bob to be upset with me. And he was like, he's not upset with you. And what
1: did Jack say? Yeah, what did Jack say? Oh,
0: Jack's so supportive. He's Mm -hmm. not upset with you. You know, this isn't a Bob issue. This is a Sean issue. Like this isn't, you know, also... Like, this isn't okay. <laughs> right. You know, so like, this isn't about that. Mm-hmm. And like, gearing me back toward away from my pattern and toward the truth. And also,
1: like, who cares?
0: Right. Yeah, and I, like, know. honestly, though, and, yeah. and like, I remember being like, when I got to that point, it was a very much a, a freeing feeling because I get so proud of how far I've come in two years mm-hmm. from that moment. But I'm, I can take myself back to that feeling and it's just, so intense of how how much people pleasing played a role in
1: justice
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and truth. Like my truth was tainted by people pleasing.
1: And your default uh setting to kind of defer to men in power. Yeah. That was all. I so knew. I want to I want to talk about the two years since because you've done a lot of work, yeah, to put yourself back together. So I want to get an understanding of how you began that process and what it looked like for you, yeah. Because I think this is Olympics aside, like I think this is the 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 piece that so many people are going to be able to relate to.
0: Yeah, this is the meat and potatoes, I guess you could say the uh, most important part about what I. Um, went through was asking for help. I finally asked for help. And I had been in and out of therapy for years, you know, leading up to all this in 2018, but it was coping. Mm-hmm. It was, I learned how to cope really well. Um, I started to recognize right around the time that this stuff came out in the news that my body was telling me something, right? So I hadn't had a period in 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, maybe more. <laughs> Not one, like nothing. So as a woman-
1: 2008 to 2018.
0: Yeah. As a woman, you're, yes, exactly that long. Yes. So So
1: your entire career. Yeah, my entire
0: post-Olympic career. Mm -hmm. And I I had like very irregular hormones throughout my career as well, like very sporadic. But the feeling as a woman of nothing vibrating through your body, like no- uh, hormones and you're you're just flat. I was in complete dorsal state for this entire time. Nothing. I couldn't cry. I could, you know, I couldn't cry at all. I was like barely emotional unless it was something gigantic. But mm-hmm. you know, something would happen. I wouldn't cry. I was just flat. I was I was kind of like dead in a way inside. Um, and you know, my body was very unhealthy. I um, had disordered eating. I wasn't eating. I was doing different things that were not healthy. With my nutrition at all. And my body started to break. So, as we know, mm-hmm. I, I broke my heel right before Otillo. Rich and I were going to go oh, wow. uh, head on over and run Otillo and I, uh, or Utulu, however you
1: say uh, it. Utilu. 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 <laughs> Every time I do that, though, I get a bunch of messages from, from people in Sweden who are angry that I got it wrong. So, I, How do you I don't say even it? try. It's something uh, like, le? uh, to le.
0: so uh, let's to, just say, uh, uh, uh yeah. to <laughs> So, but
1: we're just going to be ugly Americans and call it, we're Otillo. just going to be ugly right. Americans.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I, you uh, were going to do
1: it. And then you, me, and health went up to, yeah. to Donner Lake to train.
0: And you texted me like the day that right. you were going to go and you said, please come, come out. Let's just do this. And I'm like, but my heel's broken. I'm a mess. This thing just happened. Like what do I do? I know, but like you need to come anyway. And you were like, I don't think you understand how God sent you were for me at that moment. It was like somebody believed in me, even though I was like on the ground, literally Mm. on the ground crying for, you know. I didn't know. I didn't tell anybody. Yeah. I didn't show it.
1: I mean, I knew you were going through stuff, but I just liked your energy and I wanted you around.
0: Yeah. I I and I and I loved you guys. So yeah. I was like, sure, I'm there. So I go up there with my broken heel. Um and that was the first sign, right? That something was off. But to me, it's just an injury, get through it, boom. Maybe you can go, whatever. So we'd ended up going to that race. I didn't do it. Hillary ends up being pregnant, so it was all a wash uh-huh, anyway. Right. So it was perfect. Right. She was relieved when I told her she was like, wait, I'm pregnant. I was like <laughs> Okay, great. So we are on the same page here. (laughs) Um, so I healed up from that. The moment I healed up from that, I got septic knee in my right knee from the ocean, getting in after it rained. Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital for three, four days. You know, the whole thing went into my body. Your body was
1: was just saying, Fuck you. It was pissed. You need to stop.
0: Yes. Like you've been running. Why are you still running? (laughs) Like, let's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's do something.
1: So like, I'm throwing all this stuff at you emotionally, but you're still operating as if everything's normal. So I'm gonna, I need to literally cut you off at the knees in order for you (laughs) to pay attention.
0: (laughs) And did literally that. And then the moment I get back from my, my knee, I get, I broke my heel again. And at that point I was like, holy shit, I think I get this. And it was this light bulb that went off. That was like, okay, remember your career, Caroline, when you finally realized the mind-body connection, and you realized that you couldn't train that way mm-hmm. if you needed to be, yeah. you know, here. And so you pivoted and you did this. That's what's happening. Your body is overtrained and telling you something, you know, simplest terms at that point. So what's going on? Let's heal it. So the second heal comes around. Doctor Batten, who's down the street here, he's amazing. He's Olympic ortho, he works for the Dodgers. He looked at me and he was like, you need to stop right now, 14 weeks on crutches. And I was mm. like, no, I thought my life was over. So 14 weeks or whatever the second time, and I finally healed. I got my periods back. Um, I had started acupuncture and I started somatic experiencing therapy. All during this time. So it was what this is whole, that? Tell
1: me what that is.
0: So it focuses on the nervous system. So they basically it's not talk therapy. So it's not just cognitive behavioral therapy. It does like uh, rapid eye movement work, kind of takes mm-hmm. you back into experiences of your life and you kind of heal them through going back into them and, and working through them. It's nasty at first. It's nasty, but you work, you do the nervous system. Like it's through your nervous system. Yeah, so yeah. breathing and Meditation work, but you're working with somebody this whole time. So it's not just talking and then leaving, you know, which works, but, you know, I think that's fantastic for whoever's choosing to do that. But for me personally, as a feeler, you know, as I've explained here, it's like I feel my body feels its way through performance. It feels its way through everything I've done. It's shown me first before my head has. And so it changed my life because I was able to repair the trauma that was going on in my system. I mean, it took a year for me to get to a point where I wasn't having nightmares and flashbacks in the middle of the night. It was brutal, like. Oh. Um, but so during that time, I started all of that. So it was like the con- in mm-hmm. conjunction with healing myself, you know, on crutches, mm-hmm. I was able to sit still and work on what I needed to work on internally. And it was so so eye-opening to me to realize that I was finally in alignment with what I do best, and that's working through my feeling and through my nervous system instead of just trying to solve it all here. And think about it right. and intellectualize it.
1: You got to yeah. put pictures of bananas in your locker.
0: Yes. Right? Exactly. need to get
1: back to that. I
0: need to get back to that. That's like,
1: what works for you. That is what
0: works. And I had been going against what worked for me for so long, trying to intellectualize change and create all these thought processes that, like, you know, I'd listen to all these things and read all these books and whatever and try and do everything that I was told, and nothing was working for me because I wasn't getting to know myself and what worked mm-hmm. for me. I wasn't diving into me. Can read all the books I want, I can do all the things I need to do. But if I'm not choosing my body and my system, I'm not actually healing. And this topic I'm so passionate about. But um, so then there's a caveat here. So then I, I get I get a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm giving blood, uh-huh. I leave the facility. This corner of this table right here. Mm-hmm. It's like a cement table. I'm almost six, I'm five ten. Just collapse, leaning Tower of Pisa straight to the side, nail my head on the side of the um, concrete table, hit the floor, ricochets back, hits it again, staples, stitches, cracked my skull open. You
1: just, I don't get it. You <laughs> slipped? No, or I like, just
0: fainted. I you, fainted, oh, you and, fainted. you fainted, you collapsed. And then I, yeah, but it was like a straight to the side kind of deal, not just like a collapse kind of deal. It was like a boom, as hard as possible. So luckily I was one minute from the ER at that uh-huh. facility. So, went over there. Why did you faint though? guess I can't give blood. I guess it's just oh, a thing. Oh, that's
1: right. You were given blood. Okay. I can't that do that, sense. I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bummer because I was really excited about that. <laughs> All
1: right. Anyway. So, you're, you're, so, so the, basically <laughs> what I gather from this, the universe is like, okay, you're starting to pay attention, but like we need to go a little bit deeper. Deeper. So, I'm going to, I'm yep. going to literally knock you out.
0: Yes. And that moment, really did it woke me up in a very harsh way so i hit my head and i've never understood a brain trauma until that you know i don't understand um what happens with a brain trauma nobody does until you go through it mm-hmm. you can see people with tbi you can see them go through concussion football players like people you know and how like glossed over they are how you can't have a conversation with them they they appear quote unquote stupid or slow that is real I couldn't carry a, I couldn't string a sentence together. Oh, whoa! I couldn't have a conversation. Like if you and when I were sitting this? right here, I couldn't last for five minutes. I would have gotten out and left. Two thousand nineteen. Uh, uh, I had no idea about this. In the yeah, like right Christmas. Wow. Uh, eighteen. Sorry, at Christmas. Uh, so like, well, I'm talking. All this happened within.
1: Right. This is not two that months long ago. Yeah.
0: No. So that took me until like July to heal. Like a whole year. This is about a year and a half ago that I felt healed for the most part. And so that was like a whole thing where I, you know, I, I, I was just, I was really working through what this TBI was like. I, I couldn't associate with things, I couldn't really understand what was going on. And then when I started to heal, I started to see things differently. I was like, holy shit, like I have a lot to unpack. It was literally like I got hit over the head and it woke me up to different things that mm-hmm. I had started but that still needed to be un- hmm. dug a little bit deeper. So we dug up another layer and we go a little deeper in there. You say
1: we what what does that look like like working with a with a therapist?
0: Yeah, so Sarah Baldwin is the woman I had been working with. And so you know that kind of sets you back and then you have to dive back into things and kind of peel up what has happened for mm-hmm. you cuz actually when you do get hit in the head, your brain actually does Bring th- it does rough, ruffle things around and brings mm-hmm. things up that have been buried, which is terrifying.
1: <laughs> like so, you had like weird memories that mm-hmm. uh-huh.
0: weird dreams were coming back up again. Weird memories, um, and so that sort of healed up there, and then as I'm kind of getting back into the somatic experiencing at that point, which was exactly a year and a half ago now, um. All of a sudden, and I kid you not, like this, this, and this happened for a reason. It was the most beautiful experience. All of my trauma came back. Like everything, everything came back to my dreams at night. Like mm. I was waking up with, I was waking up in panics and sweats. And I don't know if you've ever experienced some of that, like PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress kind of feeling where you just, you feel like you're in it again.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and right. T- like you, you rebooted your operating system. You, you get this head injury, and you got to you know shut it down and reboot. And those memories, which were you know maybe in the you know some subfolder deep on the hard drive, or exactly. suddenly on the desktop, like <laughs> right, staring at you.
0: Totally, yeah. that's a good way to put yeah. it. Um, so, I, I started to to finally understand. Okay, so now that I've done the prep course <laughs> for the healing with, with Sarah, I've, I've done the mm-hmm. prep course, done my prereqs. <laughs> uh, holy shit, now I got to like go to grad school for this and it's going to be really hard. And that was um really, really difficult time actually. Um, so difficult in a different way not difficult because I'm going through anything particular, not difficult because it's present moment, Mm -hmm. difficult because I'm reliving everything again in order to heal it Mm -hmm. because I hadn't (laughs) and I had been pushing it down. And um, it has been incredible, like truly incredible for me to go through this experience because it has felt like I'm able to see things, actually feel things, which as painful as it can be as a feeler, to feel it again with a different perspective at a, a different chapter of your life, you're able to understand that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And that that comes from somewhere and that pattern is there. And then you can really you know, work through that, go through that process, unpack that and kind of move on as they come up. And it, it took me a year, <laughs> like I said, to not mm-hmm. have dreams, and nightmares and panic attacks in the middle of the night. Like I'd be calling, I called the hotline on more than one occasion last summer, every other night <laughs> for months. Wow. Cause I thought I, I, your body is in that place again. You think you are going to die. Like that's what you, your brain is telling you that when you are in a traumatic state, you don't think with a certain part of your brain at all. You just think, what do I need to do to survive right mm-hmm. now? And I was a The Body's
1: experiencing it as if it's happening Mm -hmm. in the moment, right?
0: And you learn all sorts of tools, you know, to move through that. But it would wipe me out for days. And this is when I didn't talk to anybody. And this is when I sort of went missing. (laughs) Like I just, I hid the whole year of 2019. Mm. Most of end of 18 and 2019, I didn't. Everything I did was just to make sure that people knew I was fine. Still
1: breathing. Yeah. So that process of, of you know, on some level reliving those experiences or just, you know, emotionally confronting them, I mean, that's required if you're gonna heal, right? Like yeah. you've got to walk through that process. So what was the methodology or the technique? Like, was it a specific, like, is it behavioral cognitive therapy or what kind of yeah. vein, you know, were you... Exploring this in
0: so it's called Somatic Experiencing, SE, and Peter Levine started it. I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter Levine. Mm-mm. I feel like you would love this field. By yeah. the way, if you kind of dive into some of the SE stuff
1: and and more of the um, well, I had I had Andrew Huberman in here talking about yeah. some of the you know techniques that they use, like you know with the way that you move mm-hmm. your rapid Rapidized eye movement and, yeah. and stuff like that, and how that. Helps you rewire some of your neurochemistry. Exactly. So
0: you're re- basically rewiring your entire nervous system to think and to feel something different that you haven't ever felt before. Uh-huh. And your body is gonna wanna not do it. You know, you're, you're not gonna wanna do it. So half the time we have to stop and start over, but it's a lot of rapid eye movement stuff. It's a lot of um, like would be like ventral things where you're like holding different parts of your body. Um, you recount, you, you say the event again out loud and she like take notes on what parts of your body were tensing during that process so that you can then realize what parts of your body you're holding on to that trauma and then you do work on like releasing that area and letting that go because mm-hmm. that's real i mean it it's stored in specific parts of our body mine are hips and feet and like lower mm-hmm. extremities so um so so that's a big part of it also just essentially um like I did a lot of uh, like actual active work. So when I would go in with Sarah, I would stand on the opposite side of the room. She would stand on the opposite side of the room. I would walk a little bit closer and she would do certain things to like come toward me or, or act a certain way. And whatever happened, I would have to stop and explain what that what showed up for me in that moment or like what happened. Oh, whoa. Uh-huh. And it's, I mean, there's days when I would just be like, <laughs> like just <laughs> sobbing my eyes out. But like the whole point of this, is to let your system get rid of it so that you can then create space for it to rewire. So you have to start by like sweeping, like getting Mm -hmm. rid of it, bringing it up, letting it out, and then rewiring it. And Mm -hmm. so now I'm like, I see her like once a month. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, so we've really weaned down, but, you know, rewiring that. At
1: your peak, how often were you having these sessions? Three days a week. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: I was like, well, uh-huh. I'm either gonna pay for it now or pay for it later. So yeah. I'm I'm sick of running. I was sick of my own bullshit. I was sick of getting injured. I was sick of make seeing all these symptoms pop up when really the issue was that I hadn't chosen to heal myself, I had chosen to run. I had chosen to continue to follow the same pattern I did since I was a little girl and it's just... Where can I run? What can I do to just not be seen and just make everybody happy and do all these things? Like, no, I need to choose myself for the first time in a really long time. And I can't make excuses anymore. I can't just be like, oh, this happened to me. It's mm-hmm. like, no, <laughs> it's not, it's not it's working for powerful. me anymore. <laughs> it's super
1: powerful. And I, I love how basically, you know, your life directed you towards this by stripping you down, right, this was your divine moment. Like you were being compelled to confront this. One way or the other, and had you continued to be in denial or refused to engage with this, you know, some kind of therapeutic process, your life was going to continue to decline. Like your body was going to continue to break down. It just was a matter of how much pain are you willing to sit with before you're actually going to engage with this and like yeah. grapple with these issues.
0: And here's the thing: is as women, as men, as well, that you pass on everything that you have not healed Mm -hmm. your system and your cells actually hold trauma and they will actually continue to carry that on i don't want to have children and pass that on to them i don't want to be harboring resentment and anger and you know all of it and pass it on to the next generation i don't want to do that you know so I, i sort of view my purpose in life as as being able to heal, so the next generations can continue mm-hmm. to heal, regardless of if I have my own children or not. Like that's my whole mission: is how can you create space for people to know that they're able to be whatever they can be if they can really work on healing their mind and their body together. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's just weird for people to understand at first. It's it's not. You know, it's nuanced. <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's not. Well, it forefront. gives
1: it gives the work that you do so much more resonance now. Mm-hmm. Like with rise athletes and the the you know these young athletes that that you and 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 Rebecca are mentoring now that you've you know undergone this experience, like there's so much more depth to what you can convey. Yeah. In these relationships.
0: And everything has started to make sense. You know, it's all been the same thing. It's just shown up in all of these different ways and uh-huh. different places, which I think if we look at our lives and we see a thread tied through them, it's usually that thread is one thing that everything keeps mirroring whatever it is mm-hmm. in one way or in one direction or another. You know, So for mine, it was this people-pleasing thing um, that, that needed to be fixed. But then as it started to heal, it's this mind-body thing where, okay, you, your whole life has been surrounded about being a feeler. Mm -hmm. So now let's use that to your advantage instead of using it as you can only please people. Mm -hmm. Let's use it as a way to be in this world, as a way to change and make change, you know. What a uh, relief. What, and it finally all made sense. I was like, I'm not weird, I'm not weird. It's just just who I am and that's okay. And I don't need to apologize for it anymore.
1: And what a gift that your body broke down or that you, you know, had the traumas that you had so that you were given the opportunity to confront this. Because short of that, you can live your whole life kind of uh, you know, babysitting these character defects mm-hmm. on the back burner, but nothing severe enough ever happens that compels you to look at it to the deep extent to which you have. So ultimately yeah. you become this stronger, better person because of your pain.
0: Yeah, and I've had some people ask me things like, well, what if nothing's really happened to me to where it's like allowed me to see certain things? You know, it's like, I know they're there, but nothing's really happened to push me into that place. Mm -hmm. That's like really bad to where I need to figure this out. And it's a great question. And I don't necessarily know that it has to be that way. I think what makes it easier. It makes it (laughs) way easier.
1: The thing people ask me that question. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you because like, I just was in so much pain. I didn't feel like I had any other choice. That choice is available to all of us at any moment. It's just harder to make that choice when you're not suffering. Yeah. Because who wants to do that kind of work?
0: Suffering really does lead you to And if you feel like you don't
1: need to, it's like, I got shit to do.
0: Right. You'll continue to right. right. And and so I guess the only thing that I could really think to say to someone in that position is like, you know, maybe you're just trying to think about it too much and you really have to see what your body is telling you because our bodies are actually giving us so much information Mm -hmm. that we completely ignore. And you're an expert at this, you know? Well, athletes,
1: but athletes of all people are so much more integrated in that Mm -hmm. regard. Like they've been trained to pay attention to their body and the signals that their body is giving them. So to the extent that you were still refusing to pay attention to that, I think, you know, is powerful, but The greater point being that most people aren't as connected to their bodies in the way that athletes are. So when their bodies are sending them those signals, those signals are muted or Mm -hmm. unhearable because Mm -hmm. they're, you know, clouded underneath, you know, layers of whatever else is going on with that person where they're they're just disconnected from that signal.
0: And I guess the question is how do you teach somebody that's disconnected from their body how to become connected to their body? There's a ton of modalities, but I think the real truth to that question is getting to know them and what actually what their learning style is so that you can like place one of those to it. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's different places everybody can start. Some people start in meditation, some people start by changing diet, some people start by movement,
1: some people, you know, so it's... Some people need spreadsheets and other people need pictures of bananas. Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many ways to do this. No one way. But yeah, I think that that's, that's something I'm sort of exploring now. Uh-huh. A lot of people ask me that. How? Well, I'm not in tune with my body, so how am I supposed right. to feel this somatic experience or whatever if I don't even like I don't feel anything?
1: How has the last two years changed how you how you mentor these young athletes? Mm. I love
0: that question. I think we've incorporated a lot more visualization and imagery work and breath work mm-hmm. into our program, which is huge. Um, you know, truth be told, Rebecca uh-huh. and I only work with two now each because of we have like 35 mentors. So we right. sort of have to run the business side of it instead of, you know, just mentoring. But my specific athletes, uh, it's changed in that we have conversations about what's showing up in their body. And they're able to, every time they do it, they get better and better. At first it's like, I don't know, I'm sore. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know, my right shoulder's kind of sore from 700 butterfly I did yesterday. And... um now it's more. Well, I was really short of breath yesterday because I was super stressed because I had a fight with my boyfriend, or you know, I, I and I noticed I stopped breathing. So it's like cool cue, mm-hmm. and we work on that. And then they take that and they apply it to to their competition and to school. It's you know, it's against the thing that runs across, like how can that work in multiple environments? Um, but it has increased awareness. It's increased awareness for all of our mentors, the mind body aspect in general, like knowing that. Working on an athlete's mind isn't it. You have to really work on what they feel in their body, what's showing up, and Mm -hmm. how to speak to their body in a way that they can not only become more aware of it and know what it needs, but in a way that they can create worth through their actual being so that it is aligned with their mind and that they find that happening together and, and things start to click. It's like, oh, I feel less tense or I felt really relaxed going into that race. What did that feel like? Oh, well, my shoulders were down and I felt like I could breathe. And mm. yeah, you know, I felt, you know, so they're they're recognizing what's happening in their system, mm-hmm. which if we're gonna change generations in sport, you can't just tell them to think about things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. sure you can, but in my personal opinion and experience, I've never seen an athlete, even if they love spreadsheets and love splits and times like my brother, not be able to tune into their body. Yeah in a time when they need to and understand what's going on and yeah. what it's telling them, what yeah. information that's giving them.
1: And to be able to do that under pressure or in a high stress environment yeah. where, you know, your thinking brain isn't going to cut it.
0: Yeah. You have to Yeah, because your body's going to tell you first what's going on always. And that's the crazy thing is if we listen close enough and if we put in the reps, everything is reps 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 like you just got to keep putting in the reps before you realize it but if you listen close enough you're like oh i'm super jittery like before this race or i I, um my stomach hurts my you know rib hurts uh, you know all these things that will give Mm -hmm. you information well why do those things hurt what Mm -hmm. are you holding on to you know a lot of swimmers stomachs hurt a lot of Mm-hmm. Performers always claim, you know, they'll throw up before races, their stomach hurt, you know, those things are telling you something, it's information. Right. It's not bad, it's yeah. just information.
1: It's you know? it's difficult to figure out what's meaningful out of that too because as you know, you're used to beating your body up for so long during training and then you go into this taper phase, right? And then you're just hyper aware of every little niggle in your body <laughs> yes. and you're like, there's something wrong because, yeah. you know, I, I, my toe hurts or something and it's, you know, and you yes. gotta just be like, no, you're just nervous, right? Yes. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just hyper aware. You're being hyper vigilant because you've put so much time into preparing for this very specific moment and everything in your, in your world, in your experience is super heightened.
0: So true, because the amount of times I was told, don't pay attention how you feel or don't worry about it if you hurt or, you know, mm-hmm. don't think about it, don't think about how you feel. And it, I, it's so foreign to me. I was like, what do you mean? That's all I do is I feel, I don't understand. Right. <laughs> like, How am I yeah. not supposed to think about how I feel? Uh, but I, I, you, you nailed it with that, is it you become so hyper aware that how can you reframe whatever it is that you're feeling in your system as an okay thing, as something that's just giving you information, accepting it, you know, the practice of acceptance, if you're at a race or whatever, and mm-hmm. your right knee hurts, but you're behind the blocks, well, not a lot you can do now. So reps of doing that in practice, reps of doing that with you know a sports psych consultant, reps of doing that with your coach. Like, what is it that that means? How can I reframe whatever it is in that moment, through injury or through pain, that I can then use toward whatever I right. need to get done, right. and then address it after if it's something serious, you know, right. when it comes to like injury and whatnot. But um, yeah, that whole field of injury psychology is really cool. Mm. You should pick Gervais' brain on that sometime. Yeah,
1: I never, I never <laughs> spoken about that specifically with him. It's a
0: whole deal. It's yeah. for sure. It's really interesting. Like when I was in grad school, you, you guys hang psych. out. Do you hang out? We used to work out together, and then yeah. he started a different gym routine. Oh, he did. He came to my gym. Oh, he did. <laughs> yeah, we were buddies. I see him, you know, at Source Cafe every now and he's then. The and best. We hang out. Yeah, you yeah.
1: guys are like neighbors down there.
0: Yeah, he's great. I love Gervais. He's. We've always just sort had like a great rapport. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, that field is
1: really right. cool. Well, I want to talk about your relationship to sport now because you know, look, <laughs> if you scroll through your Instagram, like you're, you know, you're getting after it, whether it's CrossFit or like swimming in the ocean, like you still, you still have this profound love for for movement and mm-hmm. fitness. But what's interesting is that it's completely outside of any competitive context, right? Like, mm-hmm. I almost feel like it was a blessing that you didn't go and do Otillo mm. because you're not supposed to be, your relationship to sport isn't supposed to be about competition. Even if you could have yeah. done that from a healthy perspective of not really caring like, you know, about how well you did and just enjoying the experience. I think there's something beautiful um, and instructive about how you've completely reframed your relationship to sports so that it has nothing to do with any metric <laughs> other than like joy.
0: Exactly. Uh, So it's interesting. I started to wanna be a student of different things. I am very curious. Uh, I wanted to try different things because after I broke my heels, I couldn't really do endurance things like Mm -hmm. run and whatnot like I used to. To me, that was what I needed to get done right when I retired, right? Run, 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 run. (laughs) keep running. Mm -hmm. And I love running. But I was like, you know, let's see what's possible. Let's see what's possible with your body.
1: And running's th- great as long as you're running towards something and not away. Away,
0: yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, yes, I'm so obsessed with running's that Running's
1: awesome for running away from stuff. Uh,
0: yeah, running's great. Once you're running away, oh yeah, you're uh-huh. just fast as hell, yeah. <laughs> um, so I started getting curious and I started thinking, okay, Caroline, you did the same thing forever. Let's see what's possible. And let's test the the boundaries a little bit and see what your body can handle, what it can't. Learn a little bit more about what your adrenals and kidneys can handle, learn a bit about what they can't. So I started taking courses at the gym. I took a strength 101 course. I took a strongman course. I took mm. um, a weightlifting course. I started swimming in the ocean. Um, what else have I done? I think that's pretty much it, mainly just strength and conditioning, but those three courses were like eight to 10 weeks long each. Uh-huh. So over a span of two years, I took these courses.
1: Was one of those, what's that CrossFit gym in Venice? Deuce, that's De- where yeah, I belong. Deuce, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: they actually have a, two, three gyms, one in mm. Venice, one in Hermosa and one in Hollywood. And so I was, I'm at the Hermosa one. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved it because all of a sudden I entered back into like eight-year-old Caroline. And it was like, everything's new. I can do whatever, I can learn things. I don't have to be, um, like a veteran at this, and like you know, I can just start over again uh-huh. with everything and feel new and learn. And I became so obsessed with learning; I loved it so much that I felt like a little kid again, a student. And throughout, I remember just being so sad week eight, <laughs> graduation day of these courses, because I was just just now getting started. Of I get this; this is a new skill, and I love learning new skills, and I love being able to see what my body can handle. And so throughout this process, I have quickly learned that strength, strict strength is not my jam. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, my body is not built to just like backflip. power squat. lift, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Tr- very traditional weightlifting, You mean. Yeah. yeah,
0: I love it, it makes, I need it, but it's not like what I'm very good at. Loved learning it though, could really pick imbalances out. Um, but I took a strongman course, which I loved. Uh-huh. And it's exactly like swimming movements. So it's like full body, like stones
1: mm-hmm. and Like kegs. throwing logs around and stuff. Yes, like yeah. you're
0: doing like caveman stuff. <laughs> and I was just in love, like flipping uh-huh. tires. And I was just in love with it. I felt like very prime. It was a very primal feeling kind of thing. And everything is like a short circuit and you really only train it twice a week. It's all you need.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I love that. That was my favorite. And I could that's, do that every a day. That's
1: different from four workouts a day.
0: Yes. Yes. And so um, about around that time, this was the second course I took, around that time I started to realize, okay, Caroline, remember when you couldn't train, you know, more than four times a week at Florida once you got down to the wire and understood what you needed. Same thing with this. Don't overthink the fact that you only need to train two times a week here. Train two times a week. Do the other days just a longer walk, something smooth, some yoga, you know, and I was in the best shape of my life. Mm. My body loved it. Yeah, I and all of a sudden it was like less is more. Feel yourself into this. You don't need to overtrain. Your adrenals don't need to go to town. You know, with all of this twenty hours a day kind of right. stuff.
1: You got to unravel all that programming around, you know, the kind of training you were doing in college. Yeah,
0: and that's what these courses served a purpose mm-hmm. for. Is it, reta- it taught me again how to be an athlete, and I didn't have to just be one type of athlete. I could be multiple different versions of mm-hmm. myself and learn what I needed, and it was beautiful. Especially because it's going to change every year. I'm 34 now. I'm not 24. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to change. So then I took a. a a weightlifting course which was like snatches and power cleans and uh, I really enjoyed that that did tax my nervous system a little more for me. Uh-huh. Uh, so out of learning these things I really did settle on like a couple of days a week of strength training is perfect right. for me. The other days really some easy kegs stuff. Around,
1: yeah. jump in the ocean. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like so on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays now I walk.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I'm just—I mean, I'm like expert power walker in South Bay. Just do, 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 and I love it, Rich. Like uh-huh. I am just listening to podcasts and music, and before I know it, I've logged five and a half miles just walking. Just mm-hmm. go for it, hour, you know. Come back, and I feel great. And that's same with swimming. Swim at fifteen hundred. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of the ocean, and you're fine. Fifteen like hundred—that's that's actually the a lot. Up,
1: you know? <laughs> oh, that. Was well, you—but you look. I mean, you look crazy strong and super fit and happy and clearly yeah. you're on the other side of this whole process like with some clarity and yeah. a lightness to you.
0: Yeah, thanks. I think I have a, a little ways to go on finding, um, I don't know finding my voice is, is the right word, but I'm still learning that it's okay to have opinions and mm-hmm. still learning it's okay to speak you can my have mind. <laughs> I know, yeah. I, I'm still learning it. The
1: people pleasing thing is tough, man. Is. I suffer from that tremendously. Yeah. You know it's it's not easy,
0: you know it's it's hard to, I think, with social media stuff because I feel like who I am as a person can't be portrayed in a square.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so it's like it,
1: what about a rectangle,
0: yeah, I'm like, what other app can I join uh-huh. that feels like me? you know I, I don't know it's just it's a funny world, but I'm still waiting for my uh myself to believe in myself a little more with things I have to say mm-hmm. and things that i um, I can only hope that storytelling and sharing experiences will allow other people to feel empowered to do the same because I think we connect through experiences and through being able to share our lives with people. So I love what you're doing with Prophets Walk Among Us. Like Mm -hmm. that's exactly it. That's exactly what it is that life is about is everybody has a story to tell and how else are we gonna get to understand ourselves and
1: others? It's the only way forward, you know, and I think That's why I'm such a strong believer in conversations like this because to the extent that your life experiences is, is vastly different from somebody who's listening, there is a shared humanity. And my hope and my belief is that, you know, the the person who needs to connect with what you have to say is gonna connect with it, you know, and it's only by giving a person like yourself enough bandwidth to share themselves openly over time that you allow that process to occur.
0: Yeah, it takes a minute to get there too. And no shame if people aren't ready to share their stories in their lives. I certainly wasn't Right. for however many years, I don't know. But if
1: I was to plop you down onto the pool deck of Olympic trials, like right now, like, and you had to go see all these coaches and all these old friends, what does that bring up for you right now?
0: In a weird way, it's like the first word that came to mind was peace. Like I just feel okay with it, you know? Like I feel like it would maybe not peace, maybe indifferent. Mm. Like of course you have the, what does this person think of me based on the the situation two years ago or, you know, based on whatever. What is this? But at the same time, kind of like...
1: (laughs) That's their business, not mine.
0: I'm just sort of indifferent. I think I, I... I see myself as um, a human more than a swimmer now than than I used to. I used to only be able to identify with my worth in life mm-hmm. with that. And that's why it was so confusing mm-hmm. because my worth was identified as something that I was proud of, but that I was also like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's that's it. That's not me. I don't want to be associated with that all the time. Like, they're you know. So,
1: yeah, and I think the the, yeah. the confusing and, and somewhat pernicious aspect of that is that it's not like your parents or the coaches or anybody is saying, you're only valuable to me to the extent that you perform. It's not like that. Totally. It's, yeah. it's a more ephemeral systemic thing where you know, maybe it's not even an expectation, but it's just an environment in which you're reared to believe that you're more valuable if you perform at a higher level. Absolutely. And you you start to intuit that and you imbue that. And then that becomes like this you know, seed of, of destruction later.
0: Yes, and just on that note, I always, I always want to say that you can have your feelings about sport and your experiences and also be so passionate about what you're doing to create change and to create something better for the world. You know, i it's like anybody that goes through something and then they become an activist in that thing so that they can create change. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that they're um, still angry at that. And I think I'm to the point now where I'm not angry at it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm just in a space of like, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, The anger has mm-hmm. subsided. Like that was strong, but now it's just like, okay, like let's do something about this. <laughs> like right. I mean, that feels honest change. to me.
1: That feels honest to me. You know, and I think ultimately with your continued, you know, uh, commitment to growth, that ultimately you could land on that pool deck and just be excited and yeah. and, and joyful and looking forward to seeing these people as yeah. opposed to indifferent.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah, I definitely want to get to the point where it's like, hell yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh,
0: And I would imagine, you know, evolution is not, you know, it's not linear. It's also not instant. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people go through, you know, that path of, of, well, uh, you know, is this happening now or never, or do I give up or do I keep going? And. The answer is keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep and going. You, you can't
1: gauge the process when you're in it anyway.
0: One hundred percent, not you can't really even see it, you know. And I, I don't think that any human that sits in this chair that talks to you has anything figured out. Nobody has anything figured out. We're all still learning, you know. And and I say that with utmost love for everybody. I learn so much from people that you know speak on your podcast, that speak on multiple. And I'm sitting here thinking how vulnerable it is to hear from people that are still growing. How cool mm-hmm. is it that we can learn from people that are still growing and still learning and still sharing and in five years they're gonna have something totally different to say.
1: I think it's more powerful that way. Yeah. When somebody, you know, is delivering some message from the perspective of I've, I, I have it all figured out yeah. and let me tell you, here's how you do it. I immediately tune out. Yeah. I wanna hear, you know, the honest, vulnerable truth of somebody who's, made progress, but is struggling and is sharing their experience from the heart. Like that's what I'm able to connect with.
0: Yeah, we're we're all sharing what we're still processing. It's just a matter of if we're aware of mm-hmm. it or not. You know, like we're all sharing things yeah. we're still working through.
1: So maybe a good way to end it is to um, share a little bit or impart a little bit of wisdom or experience to the younger athlete who's tuning in who, Perhaps is feeling like their worth is being measured by the extent to which they're able to perform, or who feels like they're not able to be themselves completely in whatever lane they've chosen right now and is trying to figure out how to have a healthier relationship to, you know, maybe it's sport, but mm-hmm. maybe it's some other thing that they're involved in.
0: Well, there's two things. One is that you can be feeling, it's okay to feel that way. Your feelings are valid. I think that is very important for a young athlete to feel. Your feelings are valid. They're not right or wrong. They're not measured. But learning how to use them constructively, whether it's through sharing or understanding it, communicating and being able to use those and move forward with whatever that is, is the key. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we get wrapped up in not saying anything because we're afraid to upset somebody. But if there's somebody that you can share how you feel with, And that feels like a safe space for you. Feels safe to validate your feelings, say it's okay, you feel that way. Let's get a little more information about that. What is it that's really showing up there and really understanding the the human's heart first, they're gonna be able to perform better. They're gonna be Mm -hmm. able to take that and use whatever that is and turn it into something constructive. Because I think we, we get stuck in our feelings and we get stuck just thinking they don't matter, brushing them away pushing them away. Really, there's so much power in that. There's so much information to be had in that. That's beautiful, regardless of if they're positive or negative. You can take that, remold it, and turn it into an amazing performance, a grade on a test, relationship with somebody, with your family members, um, extracurricular, whatever it is that that person's wanting to do. So that's something I, I like to say, because I think We're shameful of our feelings. We're shameful of what that means. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just Mm -hmm. information. And I wish I would have known that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wish I would have been okay knowing that however I felt was okay. Mm -hmm. And that it wasn't, there was nothing wrong with it. It was just information.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it's super important. I feel like at least in the context of sport, there has been a lot of progress and movement in the right direction Mm -hmm. in terms of better understanding that aspect of it. I mean, I'm- Two generations older than you, but when I see, you know, the way that young athletes are being coached and mentored now compared to what it was like when I was a kid, I mean, yeah. that was a long time ago. But, you know, of course, much more. There's much more to be gleaned and learned.
0: Totally. Mental health is at the forefront right now. Mm. People are caring about how people feel. And and I, you know, this is an important thing to note is that. You can be struggling and also be okay with your performances. You can admit that you're having a hard time and also you'll you'll still be okay. You can still be and do great things. I think there's a um a misunderstanding there that if I again back to that, if I share that I'm depressed or having a hard time or uh going through something then that means, I not going it's to be impinge well.
1: Impinge on your performance, yeah. right? I mean, that's the whole message of the weight of gold, right? Yeah. It's like kind of a call to action to embrace mm-hmm. that aspect of what it means to be vulnerable and and to have the courage to raise your hand and ask for help. Absolutely, you know, the shrouding of it, the hiding of it, because you're supposed to be, you know, this bulletproof individual is not in service to anybody, and certainly not yourself.
0: And it's not complaining, it's owning, it's self ownership. You know, I think there's a difference between complaining. I, I have some athletes say, Well, I don't want to complain. Mm-hmm. It's if we can shift it to its self ownership, then we can take that and use it. Mm-hmm. Just because you're having a hard time, have asked for help, et cetera, doesn't mean you're all of a sudden going to perform poorly. Right. It doesn't mean that you're not focusing on your swimming or your. Baseball or whatever—it means that you're doing something for your mental health, which mm-hmm. will then help that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a perspective shift,
1: right? It does require some level of of mind body integration, though, because mm-hmm. you have to know when you are copping out. Like, am I just am I just wimping out here, or am I really um, in jeopardy where mm-hmm. I need some outside help? Like, yeah. there is a difference, and if you don't have that kind of intuition, then you know you might be just you know indulging in your laziness, you know, instead of really being in peril.
0: But that's where great coaches and mentors come in. Because if somebody is vulnerable enough to share whatever it is, then they can catch that and be able to change that and turn that into something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they will just sit in their shit, (laughs) so to speak, and, you know, let it go to shit and and, well, whatever, I'm just copping out, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So if they can articulate that, communicate that information to whomever you know, coach mentor. And this is where coaches and mentors can, can hear that taking that information and being able to help somebody, being able to, to identify it without shame and turn it into something better, call them out on what it is mm-hmm. in a nice mm-hmm. way, in a beautiful way, like, hey, you're, you're tough. Let's make something out of this. Like, we're not gonna let this happen to you here. That's where things can shift for the positive. Mm-hmm. Cause you're, you're changing the behavior through, let's act on this. Right. Let's move through this. Let's not tell you it's wrong and just make you sit in it longer. Let's let's make some change here. You know, let's do something and that's on you. You're the one athlete. You're mm-hmm. the one that needs to make the change. I'm here to guide you.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that responsibility, like we're kind of talking about it from the perspective of the athlete what their responsibility is, but that responsibility also rests on the coach to create an environment that's conducive and safe for that person to do that. And I think that um, this is applicable outside of sport in the workplace, like a a boss, you know, employee relationship or how management is structured so that the work staff feels like they can, you know, raise certain issues and the manager is creating an environment that's conducive to that, I think, you know, ultimately leads to a much more effective, healthy, Place to work, or you know, environment to excel as an athlete.
0: Absolutely, and that is one of the most important things that I think any organization can hold. I mean, mm-hmm. Coaches, teams, USA Swimming, is that if the standard is held there, and if people are all believing in whatever uh, leadership there is, and the leaders are able to develop these people, athletes, you know, employees, whatever it is, into a space of vulnerability, openness, and action on what it is that we're doing, not just talking about it and sitting Uh around. It's like actually acting on it. Whether that action is let's sit with this for a minute or that action is let's take action and do something right now. Both of those things are beautiful. That's how things develop. Mm. And um, yeah, those are my greatest learnings from Mike DeBoer is he was just very much either like, okay, let's now that we have that information, let's either go this way and act on it immediately or... I'm gonna let you sit with that for a second. I'm here right here next to you, but I'm gonna let you sit with that mm. for a second. Mm. And like knowing that I was like held in that space, I think, you know, reflecting back that makes all the difference because either way is an action. Mm-hmm. You're giving, you're empowering mm. them either way. Right. They right, gotta right, figure right, it out right. on their own either way, but it's the person that's gonna hold steady and sturdy there that's holding a leadership standard.
1: Yeah. That you believe in that. Last thing, um, were there any books that stand out that you've read through this process of trying to you know manage everything that you've yeah. <laughs> managed over the couple of years that you found to be helpful.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I love yours, by the way, that I just got. Thank you. <laughs> Wish I got it a long time ago. I don't know that
1: it's going to help <laughs> anybody with their people pleasing tendencies. No, it doesn't. But... Uh,
0: but it but it also does uh, help you feel not alone. Mm. So that's huge. Um, the my favorite books are. Um, Very abstract, so I like Eastern Body, Western Mind if you've read that book. Um, Mm. The Body Keeps Score, huge for me. Um, I'm actually reading Becoming Supernatural right now, which I really love. Mm. Uh, Loyalty to Your Soul. Um, I read like a lot of mind body style books to Uh where you're integrating like energy centers with mindset work. So it's an abstract way of thinking. I could name all my books in sports psychs in yeah. grad school, but those are just sports psychs. But, no, I'm thinking um,
1: more in the context of you know, somebody who's dealing with these, these kind of particular emotional things mm-hmm. that you've, you've yeah. been dealing with.
0: And I didn't read a book for however many years during that time. I know, time. I saw
1: your latest Instagram yeah. post about that. I
0: didn't read one single book. I, I started reading them like <laughs> when I broke my heel,
1: I started reading again. Uh-huh.
0: I started doing everything that I hadn't done again to try. Um, but those are the books I gravitated toward. I gravitated toward books that felt like intuitively they were calling me to they were I was drawn to them because they were about the things that I felt unseen with that I that I needed to understand better mm-hmm. about myself, which was that connection between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. In a way that wasn't uh just psychology and sports psych, in a way right. that was like a very spiritual sense that I could understand a little bit better
1: yeah.
0: uh, about myself. Um but there are several others in there that I really enjoyed throughout that time. I'm probably blanking on a lot of them, but.
1: Well, you can email me a list or whatever yeah. and we'll put them up in the show notes. I'll, I'll
0: go everybody. through my little
1: shelf. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Got a lot of good ones.
1: Burkle's reading list <laughs> from the mind of somebody who didn't <laughs> read books for six years.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like just sketchbooks yeah. and like, yeah.
1: <laughs> right, pictures of bananas. Yeah, pictures of bananas. Um, cool, so. What's left like what's the what's the thing that's tripping you up now, or like the hurdle that you're trying to overcome
0: hmm. I think the last the last part of what I was just talking about about uh my voice and finding what it is that I feel um okay to talk about is really difficult like I'm very comfortable with you, I can talk with you about these things, but I feel like. Something that I'm really working on and getting over is feeling judged for how do you share your story and what it is that I'm, you know, that I stand by Mm -hmm. without sounding like this complaining victim or something. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to get to the bottom of that Mm -hmm. because it feels like I get stuck in that space of um, so much to say. And I have so much I believe in, but I articulating it still. I don't. I don't know. I, I wanna. I wanna feel confident in that. That it's just sharing, and not making anybody feel sorry for me or anything. Right. You know.
1: I mean, I think it's about intention.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: What is your intention? What's your motivation? What's yeah. behind the desire to write whatever it is you you're gonna write or say whatever it is you're gonna say? Yeah. You know, if it's Connection. coming from a whiny place, then you know it's going to come off as com- complaining but yeah. if it's coming from a desire to to share and service to other people who might be experiencing those emotions then it has a different tenor to it
0: i love connection if i can connect with people that's my number one intention i just i love connection mm. it's everything to me so whenever i hear people experience something similar or go through something and and approach me about it or ask questions feels like we're human together. It feels Mm -hmm. like we can be constructive in that conversation and not feel like it's just a problem.
1: Well, you must get that with Rise though. Yeah. In all these relationships with these
0: athletes. Yeah, I definitely do. And I really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. And I've been, sketching more and getting back to my fitum roots a little bit,
1: Uh which I love. I've (laughs)
0: noticed. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. I just, I I started drawing just fashion sketches and then I was just like, shoot, I'm just gonna draw the body. And that actually started helping me heal my body. I started sketching during my concussion, Mm. by the way, because I couldn't formulate words, but um, that was huge. Wow. So that was really helpful for me in order to connect with people because I met a whole new community of people Mm -hmm. in the art world. And that felt really cool to explain and share what it is that, I'm doing through, I'm healing my body through sketching. I'm healing my my body and my mind through drawing the body, mm-hmm. <laughs> through becoming one with my body again that I struggled with for so long. Mm-hmm. So um, that was really cool. And that was a whole new world that opened up my eyes to connection and that there's a lot of, there are a lot of worlds out there. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there that I can open my eyes too.
1: finally. Yeah. Well, as somebody 20 years your senior, I can tell you that there's plenty <laughs> more out there for you to learn and explore. And I can't wait to see where you end up directing your energy. Oh,
0: well, thanks, I'm excited for it. Yeah. I'll probably call you up for some advice. Anytime,
1: Anytime. <laughs> um, that was super inspiring, thank you. Yeah, and I think, thank it's, you. I think it's gonna be really helpful to a lot of people. So I appreciate it, I adore I you. So. Uh, I, I want only good things for you and I hope that you consider me a friend and a resource.
0: I for sure do. Thank you so much.
1: Cool. Um, so if you wanna connect with Caroline, you can find her on Instagram, Karo Burkle. Mm-hmm. there. Um, if you're an athlete in search of mentorship, you should check out Rise Athletes, rise-athletes.com, mm-hmm. which I should have said earlier is the company that you and Rebecca Sony founded to you know, be the kind of mentor to young athletes that you wish you guys had had when you were younger. Mm-hmm. I had Rebecca on very early on in the podcast, and she shares a lot about that. So you can check out that episode as well. Yeah, and your website Carolineberkle.com. Yeah. where you can buy yes. art prints. Bruce that up, by the <laughs> way. You are selling working art on it. prints. <laughs> yeah, I know, I am.
0: Cool. I am originals.
1: Uh-huh. And at They're some fun. point, <laughs> perhaps. An Otillo swim run might lie I'm so down.
0: Future. I'm so you know down. Who just,
1: you know, Garrett Weber Gale just did one. No way. In Austin, he G-dum. called me the other day. I love yeah, that kid. Yeah, he was like, he was all fired <laughs> up. He loved it. He's great.
0: He's,
1: he, he has such good energy. He's
0: hysterical and yeah. he's doing his same mission. You know, he went through the same struggles. And yeah,
1: he's, he's gone through it trying to figure out what his thing is, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, I, I really, I always enjoyed him. We yeah. got along great. He's He's great. a jokester. Yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. All right, well come back and talk to me again sometime. I
0: will, all I'm right. down.
1: Bye. Beautiful soul, that Caroline. Hope you guys enjoyed that. How much do you love her? She's the best, right? Be sure to give her a follow on the socials at Carol Burkle on Instagram and Twitter. C A R O Burkle, B U R C K L E. And also check out her mentoring program, Rise Athletes, at rise.athletes.com. Quick reminder the Plant Power Meal Planner is where it's at thousands of customized plant-based recipes at your fingertips with access to nutrition coaches seven days a week, all integrated with grocery delivery. And right now we got a $20 off membership gift card offer. Thanks, stocking stuffers, people. To learn more and grab your gift card today, click Meal Planner on the homepage menu at richroll.com or go directly to meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, the single most impactful thing you can do is subscribe. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. I love it when you share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition was created by Blake Curtis. Graphics by Jessica Miranda. Portraits by Allie Rogers. Sponsor relationships are managed by DK David Kahn. And theme music, as always, by Tyler, Trapper, and Harry. Appreciate the love you guys. We skipped a week of roll-on due to a scheduling thing with Adam, but we'll be back answering your questions and talking shop on Thursday. Until then, stay true. Peace, plants, namaste.